Chapter Eleven of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume Two, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wealth does not necessarily produce happiness. D'Artagnan passed through the iron gate and arrived in front of the chateau. He alighted as he saw a species of giant on the steps. Let us do justice to D'Artagnan. Independently of every selfish wish, his heart palpitated with joy when he saw that tall form and martial demeanor which recalled to him a good and brave man. He ran to Porthos and threw himself into his arms, the whole body of servants arranged in a semicircle at a respectful distance, looked on with humble curiosity. Mousqueton, at the head of them, wiped his eyes. Porthos linked his arm in that of his friend. Ah! how delightful to see you again dear friend he cried in a voice which was now changed from a baritone into a bass you've not then forgotten me forget you oh dear duvillon does one forget the happiest days of flowery youth one's dearest friends the dangers we have dared together on the contrary there is not an hour we have passed together that is not present to my memory yes yes said porthos trying to give to his moustache a curl which it had lost while he had been alone yes we did some fine things in our time and we gave that poor cardinal a few threads to unravel and he heaved a sigh under any circumstances he resumed you are welcome my dear friend you will help me to recover my spirits "'Tomorrow we will hunt the hare on my plain, which is a superb tract of land, "'or pursue the deer in my woods, which are magnificent. "'I have four harriers which are considered the swiftest in the country, "'and a pack of hounds which are unequaled for twenty leagues around.' "'And Porthos heaved another sigh. "'But first interposed d'artagnan you must present me to madame de Ballon. a third sigh from porthos i lost madame de Ballon two years ago he said and you find me still in affliction on that account that was the reason why i left my chateau de Ballon near corbeille and came to my estate bracieux poor madame de Ballon, her temper was uncertain but she came at last to accustom herself to my little ways and understand my little wishes so you are free now and rich alas groaned porthos i am a widower and have forty thousand francs a year let us go to breakfast i shall be happy to do so the morning air has made me hungry yes said porthos my air is excellent they went into the chateau there was nothing but gilding high and low the cornices were gilt the mouldings were gilt the legs and arms of the chairs were gilt a table ready set out awaited them you see said porthos 
this is my usual style devil take me answered d'artagnan i wish you joy of it the king has nothing like it no answered porthos i hear it said that he is very badly fed by the cardinal monsieur de mazarin taste this cutlet my dear d'artagnan tis off one of my sheep you have very tender mutton and i wish you joy of it said d'artagnan yes the sheep are fed in my meadows which are excellent pasture give me another cutlet no try this hare which i had killed yesterday in one of my warrens sounds what a flavor cried d'artagnan ah they are fed on time only your hairs and how do you like my wine asked porthos it is pleasant isn't it capital it is nothing however but a wine of the country really yes a small declivity to the south yonder on my hill gives me twenty hogsheads quite a vineyard hey porthos sighed for the fifth time d'artagnan had counted his sighs he became curious to solve the problem well now he said it seems my dear friend that something vexes you you are ill perhaps that health which excellent my dear friend better than ever i could kill an ox with a blow of my fist well then family affairs perhaps family i have happily only myself in the world to care for but what makes you sigh my dear fellow replied porthos to be candid with you i am not happy you are not happy porthos you who have chateau meadows mountains woods you who have forty thousand francs a year you are not happy my dear friend all those things i have but i am a hermit in the midst of superfluity surrounded i suppose only by clodhoppers with whom you could not associate porthos turned rather pale and drank off a large glass of wine no but just think there are paltry country squires who have all some title or another and pretend to go back as far as charlemagne or at least to hugh capet when i first came here being the last comer it was for me to make the first advances i made them but you know my dear friend madame du vallon porthos in pronouncing these words seemed to gulp down something madame du vallon was of doubtful gentility she had in her first marriage i don't think d'artagnan i am telling you anything new married a lawyer they thought that nauseous you can understand that's a word bad enough to make one kill thirty thousand men 
I have killed two, which has made people hold their tongues, but has not made me their friend, so that I have no society. I live alone. I am sick of it. My mind preys on itself. D'Artagnan smiled. He now saw where the breastplate was weak and prepared the blow. But now, he said, that you are a widower, your wife's connection cannot injure you. Yes, but understand me, not being of a race of historic fame, like the Dethorsis, who were content to be plain sirs, or the Rohans, who didn't wish to be dukes, all these people, who are all either vicomtes or comtes, go before me at church in all the ceremonies, and I can say nothing to them. Ah, if I were only a... A baron, don't you mean? cried D'Artagnan, finishing his friend's sentence. Ah, cried Porthos, would I were but a baron. Well, my friend, I come to give you this very title which you wish for so much. Porthos gave a start that shook the room. Two or three bottles fell and were broken. Mousqueton ran thither, hearing the noise. Porthos waved his hand to Mousqueton to pick up the bottles. "'I am glad to see,' said D'Artagnan, "'that you have still that honest lad with you.' "'He is my steward,' replied Porthos. "'He will never leave me. "'Go away now, Mouston.' "'So he's called Mouston,' thought D'Artagnan. "'It is too long a word to pronounce Mousqueton.' "'Well,' he said aloud, "'let us resume our conversation later.' Your people may suspect something. Uh, there may be spies about. You can suppose, Porthos, that what I have to say relates to most important matters. Devil take them. Let us walk in the park, answered Porthos, for the sake of digestion. Egad, said D'Artagnan, the park is like everything else, and there are as many fish in your pond as rabbits in your warren. You are a happy man, my friend, since you have not only retained your love of the chase, but acquired that of fishing. My friend, replied Porthos, I leave fishing to Mousqueton. It is a vulgar pleasure, but I shoot sometimes, that is to say, when I am dull, and I sit on one of those marble seats, have my gun brought to me, my favorite dog, and I shoot rabbits really how very amusing yes replied porthos with a sigh it is amusing d'artagnan now no longer counted the sighs they were innumerable however what had you to say to me he resumed let us return to that subject with pleasure replied d'artagnan i must however first frankly tell you that you must change your mode of life how go into harness again gird on your sword run after adventures and leave as in old times a little of your fat on the roadside ah hang it said porthos 
I see you are spoiled, dear friend. You are corpulent. Your arm has no longer that movement of which the late cardinal's guards have so many proofs. Ah, my fist is strong enough, I swear, cried Porthos, extending a hand like a shoulder of mutton. So much the better. Are we then to go to war? By my troth, yes. Against whom? Are you a politician, friend? Not in the least. Are you for Mazarin or for the princes? I am for no one. That is to say, you are for us. Well, I tell you that I come to you from the cardinal. This speech was heard by Porthos in the same sense as if it had still been in the year 1640 and related to the true cardinal. Oh, oh, what are the wishes of his eminence? He wishes to have you in his service. And who spoke to him of me? Rochefort, you remember him? Yes, pardieu, it was he who gave us so much trouble and kept us on the road so much. You gave him three sword wounds in three separate engagements. But you know he is now our friend. No, I didn't know that, so he cherishes no resentment. You are mistaken, Porthos, said D'Artagnan. It is I who cherish no resentment. Porthos didn't understand any too clearly, but then we know that understanding was not his strong point. You say, then, he continued, that the Count de Rochefort spoke of me to the cardinal? Yes, and the queen, too. The queen, do you say? To inspire us with confidence, she has even placed in Mazarin's hand that famous diamond. You remember all about it, that I once sold to Monsieur de Sazart, and of which I don't know how she has regained possession. But it seems to me, said Porthos, that she would have done much better if she had given it back to you. So, I think replied d'artagnan but kings and queens are strange beings and have odd fancies nevertheless since they are the ones who have riches and honors we are devoted to them yes we are devoted to them repeated porthos and you to whom are you devoted now to the king the queen and to the cardinal Moreover, I have answered for your devotion also. And you say that you have made certain conditions on my behalf? <laughs> magnificent, my dear fellow, magnificent. In the first place, you have plenty of money, haven't you? A forty-thousand-franc income, I think you said. Porthos began to be suspicious. Eh, hey, my friend, said he, one never has too much money. Madame de Bellon left things in much disorder. I am not much of a hand at figures, so that I live almost from hand to mouth. He is afraid I have come to borrow money, thought D'Artagnan. Ah, my friend, said he, 
it is all the better if you are in difficulties how is it all the better yes for his eminence will give you all that you want land money and titles ah 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 said porthos opening his eyes at that last word under the other cardinal continued d'artagnan we didn't know enough to make our profits this however doesn't concern you with your forty thousand franc income the happiest man in the world it seems to me porthos sighed at the same time continued d'artagnan notwithstanding your forty thousand francs a year and perhaps even for the very reason that you have forty thousand francs a year it seems to me that a little coronet would do well on your carriage hey yes indeed said porthos well my dear friend win it it is at the point of your sword we shall not interfere with each other your object is title mine money if i can get enough to rebuild artagnan which my ancestors impoverished by the crusades allowed to fall into ruins and to buy thirty acres of land about it that is all i wish i shall retire and die tranquilly at home for my part said porthos i desire to be made a baron you shall be one and have you not seen any of our other friends yes i have seen aramis and what does he wish to be a bishop aramis answered d'artagnan who did not wish to undeceive porthos aramis fancy has become a monk and a jesuit and lives like a bear my offers did not arouse him did not even tempt him so much the worse he was a clever man and athos i have not yet seen him do you know where i shall find him near blois he is called bragelonne only imagine my dear friend athos who was of as high birth as the emperor and who inherits one estate which gives him the title of comte what is he to do with all those dignities the comte de la fere comte de bragelonne and he has no children with all these titles ah said porthos i have heard that he had adopted a young man who resembles him greatly what athos or athos who was as virtuous as scipio have you seen him no well i shall see him to-morrow and tell him about you but i'm afraid entre nous that his liking for wine has aged and degraded him yes he used to drink a great deal replied porthos and then he was older than any of us added d'artagnan some years only his gravity made him look older than he was well then if we can get athos all will be well if we cannot we will do without him we too are worth a dozen yes said porthos smiling at the remembrance of his former exploits but we four 
altogether would be equal to thirty-six more especially as you say the work will not be child's play will it last long by a lady two or three years perhaps so much the better cried porthos you have no idea my friend how my bones ache since i came here sometimes on a sunday i take a ride in the fields and on the property of my neighbors in order to pick up a nice little quarrel which i am really in want of but nothing happens either they respect or they fear me which is more likely but they let me trample down the clover with my dogs insult and obstruct every one and i come back still more weary and low-spirited that's all at any rate tell me there's more chance of fighting in paris is there not in that respect my dear friend it's delightful no more edicts no more of the cardinal's guards no more de jussacs nor other bloodhounds egad underneath a lamp in an inn anywhere they ask are you one of the fronde they unsheath and that's all that is said the duc de guise killed monsieur de coligny in the place royale and nothing was said of it oh things go on gaily then said porthos besides which in a short time resumed d'artagnan we shall have set battles cannonades conflagrations and there will be great variety well then i decide i have your word then yes tis given i shall fight heart and soul for mazarin but 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 he must make me a baron zounds said d'artagnan that's settled already i will be responsible for the barony on this promise being given porthos who had never doubted his friend's assurance turned back with him toward the castle end of chapter eleven recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter twelve of the d'artagnan romances volume two twenty years after by alexander dumas translated by william robson this LibriVox recording is in the public domain porthos was discontented with his condition as they returned toward the castle d'artagnan thought of the miseries of poor human nature always dissatisfied with what it has ever desirous of what it has not in the position of porthos d'artagnan would have been perfectly happy and to make porthos contented there was wanting what five letters to put before his three names a tiny coronet to paint upon the panels of his carriage i shall pass all my life thought d'artagnan in seeking for a man who is really contented with his lot whilst making this reflection chance seemed as it were to give him the lie direct one porthos had left him to give some orders he saw mousqueton approaching the face of the steward despite one slight shade of care light as a summer cloud seemed a physiognomy of absolute felicity here is what i am looking for thought d'artagnan but alas the poor fellow does not know the purpose for which i am here he then made a sign for mousqueton to come to him sir said the servant 
I have a favor to ask of you. Speak out, my friend. I am afraid to do so. Perhaps you will think, sir, that prosperity has spoiled me. Art thou happy, friend? asked D'Artagnan. As happy as possible. And yet, sir, you may make me even happier than I am. Well, speak, if it depends on me. Oh, sir, it depends on you only. I listen. I am waiting to hear. Sir, the favor I have to ask of you is not to call me Mousqueton, but Mouston. Since I have had the honor of being my lord's steward, I have taken the last name as more dignified and calculated to make my inferiors respect me. You, sir, know how necessary subordination is in any large establishment of servants. D'Artagnan smiled. Porthos wanted to lengthen out his names, Mousqueton to cut his short. "'Well, my dear Mouston,' he said, "'rest satisfied, I will call thee Mouston, "'and if it makes thee happy, I will not tutoyer you any longer.' "'Oh!' cried Mousqueton, reddening with joy. "'If you do me, sir, such honor, I shall be grateful all my life. "'It is too much to ask.' "'Alas!' thought D'Artagnan, it is very little to offset the unexpected tribulations I am bringing to this poor devil, who has so warmly welcomed me. "'Will monsieur remain long with us?' asked Mousqueton, with a serene and glowing countenance. "'I go to-morrow, my friend,' replied D'Artagnan. "'Ah, monsieur,' said Mousqueton, "'then you have come here only to awaken our regrets.' "'I fear that is true,' said D'Artagnan in a low voice. D'Artagnan was secretly touched with remorse, not at inducing Porthos to enter into schemes in which his life and fortune would be in jeopardy, for Porthos, in the title of Baron, had his object and reward. But poor Mousqueton, whose only wish was to be called Mouston, was it not cruel to snatch him from the delightful state of peace and plenty in which he was?' He was thinking of these matters when Porthos summoned him to dinner. "'What? To dinner?' said D'Artagnan. "'What time is it, then?' "'Eh? Why, it is after one o'clock.' "'Your home is a paradise, Porthos. One takes no note of time. I follow you, though. I am not hungry.' "'Come, if one can't always eat, one can always drink. A maxim of poor Athos.' the truth of which I have discovered since I began to be lonely. D'Artagnan, who, as a Gascon, was inclined to sobriety, seemed not so sure as his friend of the truth of Athos's maxim, but he did his best to keep up with his host. Meanwhile, his misgivings in regard to Mousqueton recurred to his mind, and with greater force because Mousqueton, though he did not himself wait on the table, which would have been beneath him in his new position, appeared at the door from time to time, and evinced his gratitude to D'Artagnan by the quality of the wine he directed to be served. Therefore, when at dessert, upon a sign from D'Artagnan, Porthos had sent away his servants, and the two friends were alone. "'Porthos,' said D'Artagnan, "'who will attend you in your campaigns?' "'Why,' replied Porthos, "'Mouston, of course!' This was a blow to D'Artagnan. 
he could already see the intendant's beaming smile change to a contortion of grief but he said mouston is not so young as he was my dear fellow besides he has grown fat and perhaps has lost his fitness for active service that may be true replied porthos but i am used to him and besides he wouldn't be willing to let me go without him he loves me so much oh blind self-love thought d'artagnan and you asked porthos haven't you still in your service your old lackey that good that brave that intelligent uh, what then is his name planchet yes i have found him again but he is lackey no longer what is he then with his sixteen hundred franc you remember the sixteen hundred franc he earned at the siege of la rochelle by carrying a letter to lord de winter he has set up a little shop in the rue de Lombard and is now a confectioner ah he is a confectioner in the rue de Lombard. how does it happen then that he is in your service he has been guilty of certain escapades and fears he may be disturbed and the musketeer narrated to his friend planchet's adventure well said porthos if anyone had told you in the old times that the day would come when planchet would rescue rochefort and that you would protect him in it i should not have believed him but men are changed by events there is nothing truer than that said porthos but what does not change or changes for the better is wine taste of this it is a spanish wine which our friend athos thought much of at that moment the steward came in to consult his master upon the proceedings of the next day and also with regard to the shooting party which had been proposed tell me mouston said porthos are my arms in good condition your arms my lord what arms zounds my weapons what weapons my military weapons yes my lord at any rate i think so make sure of it and if they want it have them burnished up which is my best cavalry horse vulcan and the best hack bayard what horse dost thou choose for thyself i like rustaud my lord a good animal whose paces suit me strong thinkest thou half norman half mecklenburger it will go night and day that will do for us see to the horses polish up or make someone else polish my arms then take pistols with thee and a hunting knife are we then going to travel my lord asked mousqueton rather uneasy something better still mouston an expedition sir asked the steward whose roses began to change into lilies we are going to return to the service mouston replied porthos still trying to restore his mustache to the military curl it had long lost into the service the king's service 
Mousqueton trembled. Even his fat, smooth cheeks shook as he spoke, and he looked at D'Artagnan with an air of reproach. He staggered, and his voice was almost choked. "'Yes and no. We shall serve in a campaign, seek out all sorts of adventures, return, in short, to our former life.' These last words fell on Mousqueton like a thunderbolt. It was those very terrible old days that made the present so excessively delightful, and the blow was so great he rushed out, overcome, and forgot to shut the door. The two friends remained alone to speak of the future and to build castles in the air. The good wine which Mousqueton had placed before them traced out in glowing drops to D'Artagnan a fine perspective shining with quadruples and pistoles, and showed to Porthos a blue ribbon and a ducal mantle. They were, in fact, asleep on the table when the servants came to light them to their bed. Mousqueton was, however, somewhat consoled by D'Artagnan, who the next day told him that in all probability war would always be carried on in the heart of Paris and within reach of the Chateau de Bellon, which was near Corbeil or Bressieux, which was near Melun and of Pierrefonds, which was between Campania and Villa Cotterette. But formerly, it appears, began Mousqueton timidly. Oh, said D'Artagnan, we don't now make war as we did formerly. Today it's a sort of diplomatic arrangement. Ask Planchet. Mousqueton inquired, therefore, the state of the case of his old friend who confirmed the statement of D'Artagnan. But, he added, in this war prisoners stand a chance of being hung. The deuce they do, said Mousqueton. I think I should like the siege of Rochelle better than this war, then. Porthos, meantime, asked D'Artagnan to give him his instructions how to proceed on his journey. Four days, replied his friend are necessary to reach Blois, one day to rest there, three or four days to return to Paris. Set out, therefore, in a week, with your suite, and go to the Hotel de la Chevrette, Rue Ticaton, and there await me. That's agreed, said Porthos. As to myself, I shall go around to see Athos, for though I don't think his aid worth much, one must with one's friends observe all due politeness, said D'Artagnan. The friends then took leave of each other on the very border of the estate of Pierrefonds, to which Porthos escorted his friend. At least, D'Artagnan said to himself as he took the road to Villarcotterette, at least I shall not be alone in my undertaking. That devil Porthos is a man of prodigious strength. Still, if Athos joins us, well, we shall be three of us to laugh at Aramis, that little coxcomb with his too good luck. At Villers-Cotterette, he wrote to the cardinal, My lord, I have already one man to offer to your eminence, and he is well worth twenty men. I am just setting out for Blois. The Comte de la Fere inhabits the castle of Bragelonne in the environs of that city. End of chapter 12. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 13 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Angelic Faces 
The road was long, but the horses upon which D'Artagnan and Planchet rode had been refreshed in the well-supplied stables of the Lord of Brasseur. The master and servant rode side by side, conversing as they went, for D'Artagnan had by degrees thrown off the master, and Planchet had entirely ceased to assume the manners of a servant. He had been raised by circumstances to the rank of a confidant to his master. It was many years since D'Artagnan had opened his heart to anyone. It happened, however, that these two men, on meeting again, assimilated perfectly. Planchet was in truth no vulgar companion in these new adventures. He was a man of uncommonly sound sense. Without courting danger, he never shrank from an encounter. In short, he had been a soldier and arms ennoble a man. It was therefore on the footing of friends that D'Artagnan and Planchet arrived in the neighborhood of Blois. Going along, D'Artagnan, shaking his head, said, "'I know that my going to Athos is useless and absurd, but still I owe this courtesy to my old friend, a man who had in him material for the most noble and generous of characters.' "'Oh, Monsieur Athos was a noble gentleman,' said Planchet. "'Was he not?' scattering money round about him as heaven sprinkles rain do you remember sir that duel with the englishman in the enclosure de calm ah how lofty how magnificent monsieur athos was that day when he said to his adversary you have insisted on knowing my name sir so much the worse for you since i shall be obliged to kill you i was near him those were his exact words when he stabbed his foe as he said he would and his adversary fell without saying oh tis a noble gentleman monsieur athos yes true as gospel said d'artagnan but one single fault has swallowed up all these fine qualities i remember well said planchet he was fond of drinking in truth he drank but not as other men drink. One seemed, as he raised the wine to his lips, to hear him say, Come, juice of the grape, and chase away my sorrows. And how he used to break the stem of a glass, or the neck of a bottle. There was no one like him for that. And now, replied D'Artagnan, behold the sad spectacle that awaits us. This noble gentleman with his lofty glance, this handsome cavalier so brilliant in feats of arms that everyone was surprised that he held in his hand a sword only instead of a baton of command. Alas, we shall find him changed into a broken-down old man with garnet nose and eyes that slobber. We shall find him extended on some lawn whence he will look at us with a languid eye and peradventure will not recognize us. God knows, Planchet, that I should fly from a sight so sad if I did not wish to show my respect for the illustrious shadow of what was once the Comte de la Fere whom we loved so much. Planchet shook his head and said nothing. It was evident that he shared his master's apprehensions. And then, resumed D'Artagnan, to this decrepitude is probably added poverty, for he must have neglected the little that he had, and the dirty scoundrel Grimaud, more taciturn than ever, and still more drunken than his master. Stay, Planchet, it breaks my heart to merely think of it. I fancy myself there, and that I see him staggering, and hear him stammering, said Planchet in a piteous tone. 
but at all events we shall soon know the real state of things for i imagine that those lofty walls now turning ruby in the sun are the walls of blois probably and those steeples pointed and sculptured that we catch a glimpse of yonder are similar to those that i have heard described at chambord at this moment one of those heavy wagons drawn by bullocks which carry the wood cut in the fine forests of the country to the ports of the loire came out of a by-road full of ruts and turned on that which the two horsemen were following a man carrying a long switch with a nail at the end of it with which he urged on his slow team was walking with the cart ho friend cried planchet what's your pleasure gentlemen replied the peasant with a purity of accent peculiar to the people of that district and which might have put to shame the cultured denizens of the Sorbonne and the rue de l'université we are looking for the house of monsieur de la fere said d'artagnan the peasant took off his hat on hearing this revered name gentlemen he said the wood that i am cutting is his i cut it in his copse and i am taking it to the chateau d'artagnan determined not to question this man he did not wish to hear from another what he had himself said to planchet the chateau he said to himself what chateau ah i understand athos is not a man to be thwarted he like porthos has obliged his peasantry to call him my lord and to dignify his pettifogging place by the name of chateau he had a heavy hand dear old athos after drinking d'artagnan after asking the man the right way continued his route agitated in spite of himself at the idea of seeing once more that singular man whom he had so truly loved and who had contributed so much by advice and example to his education as a gentleman he checked by degrees the speed of his horse and went on, his head drooping as if in deep thought. Soon, as the road turned, the Chateau de la Valliere appeared in view. Then, a quarter of a mile beyond, a white house, encircled in sycamores, was visible at the farther end of a group of trees, which spring had powdered with a snow of flowers. On beholding this house, D'Artagnan, calm as he was in general, felt an unusual disturbance within his heart so powerful during the whole course of life are the recollections of youth he proceeded nevertheless and came opposite to an iron gate ornamented in the taste of the period through the gate was seen kitchen gardens carefully attended to a spacious courtyard in which neighed several horses held by valets in various liveries and a carriage drawn by two horses of the country we are mistaken said d'artagnan this cannot be the establishment of athos good heavens suppose he is dead and that this property now belongs to someone who bears his name alight planchet and inquire for i confess that i have scarcely courage to do so planchet alighted thou must add said d'artagnan that a gentleman who is passing by wishes to have the honor of paying his respects to the comte de la fere and if thou art satisfied with what thou hearest then mention my name planchet leading his horse by the bridle drew near to the gate and rang the bell and immediately a servant man with white hair and of erect stature notwithstanding his age presented himself does monsieur le comte de la fere live here asked planchet yes monsieur it is here he lives the servant replied to planchet who was not in livery 
A nobleman retired from service, is he not? Yes. And who had a lackey named Grimaud, persisted Planchet, who had prudently considered that he couldn't have too much information. Monsieur Grimaud is absent from the chateau for the time being, said the servitor, who, little used as he was to such inquiries, began to examine Planchet from head to foot. Then, cried Planchet joyously, I see well that it is the same Comte de la Fere whom we seek. Be good enough to open to me, for I wish to announce to Monsieur le Comte that my master, one of his friends, is here and wishes to greet him. Why didn't you say so? said the servitor, opening the gate. But where is your master? He is following me. The servitor opened the gate and walked before Planchet, who made a sign to D'Artagnan. The latter, his heart palpitating more than ever, entered the courtyard without dismounting. Whilst Planchet was standing on the steps before the house, he heard a voice say, "'Well, where is this gentleman, and why do they not bring him here?' This voice, the sound of which reached D'Artagnan, reawakened in his heart a thousand sentiments, a thousand recollections that he had forgotten. He vaulted hastily from his horse, whilst Planchet, with a smile on his lips, advanced toward the master of the house. But I know you, my lad, said Athos, appearing on the threshold. Oh, yes, Monsieur le Comte, you know me and I know you. I am Planchet, Planchet, whom you know well. But the honest servant could say no more, so much was he overcome by this unexpected interview. What? Planchet? Is Monsieur d'Artagnan here? Here I am, my friend, dear Athos, cried d'Artagnan in a faltering voice and almost staggering from agitation. At these words a visible emotion was expressed on the beautiful countenance and calm features of Athos. He rushed toward D'Artagnan, with eyes fixed upon him, and clasped him in his arms. D'Artagnan, equally moved, pressed him also closely to him, whilst tears stood in his eyes. Athos then took him by the hand and led him into the drawing-room, where there were several people. Everyone arose. "'I present to you,' he said, Monsieur le Chevalier d'Artagnan, lieutenant of the Majesty's musketeers, a devoted friend, and one of the most excellent, brave gentlemen that I have ever known. D'Artagnan received the compliments of those who were present in his own way, and whilst the conversation became general, he looked earnestly at Athos. Strange! Athos was scarcely aged at all, his fine eyes no longer surrounded by that dark line which nights of dissipation pencil to infallibly, seemed larger, more liquid than ever. His face, a little elongated, had gained in calm dignity what it had lost in feverish excitement. His hand, always wonderfully beautiful and strong, was set off by a ruffle of lace like certain hands by Titian and Van Dyke. He was less stiff than formerly, his long, dark hair, softly powdered here and there with silver tendrils, fell elegantly over his shoulders in wavy curls. His voice was still youthful, as if belonging to a Hercules of twenty-five, and his magnificent teeth, which he had preserved white and sound, gave an indescribable charm to his smile. Meanwhile, the guests, seeing that the two friends were longing to be alone, prepared to depart when a noise of dogs barking resounded through the courtyard, and many persons said at the same moment, "'Ah, tis Raoul who has come home!' Athos, as the name of Raoul was pronounced, looked inquisitively at D'Artagnan, 
in order to see if any curiosity was painted on his face. But D'Artagnan was still in confusion and turned around almost mechanically when a fine young man of fifteen years of age, dressed simply but in perfect taste, entered the room, raising as he came his hat, adorned with a long plume of scarlet feathers. Nevertheless, D'Artagnan was struck by the appearance of this new personage. It seemed to explain to him the change in Athos. A resemblance between the boy and the man explained the mystery of this regenerated existence. He remained listening and gazing. "'Here you are, home again, Raoul,' said the Comte. "'Yes, sir,' replied the youth, with deep respect, "'and I have performed the commission that you gave me.' "'But what's the matter, Raoul?' said Athos, very anxiously. "'You are pale and agitated.' "'Sir,' replied the young man, "'it is on account of an accident which has happened to our little neighbor.' "'To Mademoiselle de la Valliere?' asked Athos quickly. "'What is it?' cried many persons present. "'She was walking with her nurse, Marceline, in the place where the woodman cut the wood. When passing on horseback I stopped. She saw me also, and in trying to jump from the end of a pile of wood on which she had mounted, the poor child fell and was not able to rise again. I fear that she has badly sprained her ankle.' "'Oh, heavens!' cried Athos, and her mother, Madame de Saint-Rémy, have they told her of it? No, sir, Madame de Saint-Rémy is at Blois with the Duchess of Orléans. I am afraid that what was first done was unskillful, if not worse than useless. I am come, sir, to ask your advice. Send directly to Blois, Raoul, or rather, take horse and ride immediately yourself. Raoul bowed. But— where is louise asked the comte i have brought her here sir and i have deposited her in charge of charlotte who till better advice comes has bathed the foot in cold well water the guests now all took leave of athos excepting the old duke de barbe who was an old friend of the family of la valliere went to see little louise and offered to take her to blois in his carriage you are right sir said athos she will be the sooner with her mother. As for you, Raoul, I am sure it is your fault, some giddiness or folly. No, sir, I assure you, muttered Raoul, it is not. Oh, no, no, I declare it is not, cried the young girl, while Raoul turned pale at the idea of his being perhaps the cause of her disaster. Nevertheless, Raoul, you must go to Blois. You must make your excuses and mine to Madame de Saint-Rémy. The youth looked pleased. He again took in his strong arms the little girl, whose pretty golden head and smiling face rested on his shoulder, and placed her gently in the carriage, then jumping on his horse with the elegance of a first-rate esquire. After bowing to Athos and D'Artagnan, he went off close by the door of the carriage, on somebody inside of which his eyes were riveted. End of chapter 13. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 14 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Castle of Bragelonne. Whilst this scene was going on, D'Artagnan remained with open mouth and a confused gaze. 
Everything had turned out so differently from what he expected that he was stupefied with wonder. Athos, who had been observing him and guessing his thoughts, took his arm and led him into the garden. "'While supper is being prepared,' he said, smiling, "'you will not, my friend, be sorry to have the mystery which so puzzles you cleared up.' "'True, Monsieur le Comte,' replied D'Artagnan, who felt that, by degrees, Athos was resuming that great influence which his aristocracy had over him. Athos smiled. First and foremost, dear D'Artagnan, we have no title such as Count here. When I call you Chevalier, it is in presenting you to my guests that they may know who you are. But to you, D'Artagnan, I am, I hope, still, dear Athos, your comrade, your friend. Do you intend to stand on ceremony because you are less attached to me than you were? Oh, God forbid! Then let us be as we used to be. Let us be open with each other. You are surprised at what you see here? Extremely. But, above all things, I am a marvel to you. I confess it. I am still young, am I not? Should you not have known me again, in spite of my eight-and-forty years of age? On the contrary, I do not find you the same person at all. I understand cried Athos, with a gentle blush. Everything, D'Artagnan, even folly, has its limit. Then your means, it appears, are improved. You have a capital house, your own, I presume. You have a park, and horses, servants. Athos smiled. Yes, I inherited this little property when I quitted the army, as I told you. The park is twenty acres, Twenty comprising kitchen gardens and a common. I have two horses. I do not count my servant's bobtailed nag. My sporting dogs consist of two pointers, two harriers, and two setters. But then, all this extravagance is not for myself, added Athos, laughing. Yes, I see, for the young man Raoul, said D'Artagnan. You guess aright, my friend. This youth is an orphan, deserted by his mother, who left him in the house of a poor country priest. I have brought him up. It is Raoul who has worked in me the change you see. I was dried up like a miserable tree, isolated, attached to nothing on earth. It was only a deep affection that could make me take root again and drag me back to life. This child has caused me to recover what I had lost. I had no longer any wish to live for myself. I have lived for him. I have corrected the vices that I had. I have assumed the virtues that I had not. Precept something, but example more. I may be mistaken, but I believe that Raoul will be as accomplished a gentleman as our degenerate age could display. The remembrance of Milady recurred to D'Artagnan. Are you happy? he said to his friend as happy as it is allowed to one of God's creatures to be on this earth. But say out all you think, D'Artagnan, for you have not yet done so. You are too bad, Athos. One can hide nothing from you, answered D'Artagnan. I wish to ask you if you ever feel any emotions of terror resembling... Remorse? I finished your phrase. Yes and no... I do not feel remorse, because that woman, I profoundly hold, deserved her punishment. Had she one redeeming trait? 
I doubt it. I do not feel remorse, because, had we allowed her to live, she would have persisted in her work of destruction. But I do not mean, my friend, that we were right in what we did. Perhaps all blood demands some expiation. Hers had been accomplished, it remains, possibly for us to accomplish ours. I have sometimes thought as you do, Athos. She had a son, that unhappy woman. Yes. Have you ever heard of him? Never. He must be about twenty-three years of age, said Athos in a low tone. I often think of that young man, D'Artagnan. Strange, for I had forgotten him, said the lieutenant. Athos smiled. The smile was melancholy. And Lord de Winter, do you know anything about him? I know that he is in high favor with Charles I. The fortunes of that monarch now are at low water. He shed the blood of Strafford. That confirms what I said just now. Blood will have blood. And the queen? What queen? Madame Henrietta of England, daughter of Henry IV. She is at the Louvre, as you know. Yes, and I hear in bitter poverty. Her daughter, during the severest cold, was obliged for want of fire to remain in bed. Do you grasp that? said Athos, shrugging his shoulders. The daughter of Henry IV, shivering for want of a faggot. Why did she not ask from any one of us a home instead of from Mazarin? She should have wanted nothing. "'Have you ever seen the Queen of England?' inquired D'Artagnan. "'No, but my mother as a child saw her. Did I ever tell you that my mother was Lady of Honor to Marie de Medici?' "'Never. You know, Athos, you never spoke much of such matters.' "'Ah, mon Dieu, yes, you are right,' Athos replied. "'But then there must be some occasion for speaking.' Porthos wouldn't have waited for it so patiently, said D'Artagnan with a smile. Everyone according to his nature, my dear D'Artagnan. Porthos, in spite of a touch of vanity, has many excellent qualities. Have you seen him? I left him five days ago, said D'Artagnan, and he portrayed with Gascon wit and sprightliness the magnificence of Porthos in his Chateau of Pierrefonds nor did he neglect to launch a few arrows of wit at the excellent Monsieur Mouston. "'I sometimes wonder,' replied Athos, smiling at the gaiety which recalled the good old days, "'that we could form an association of men who would be, after twenty years of separation, still so closely bound together. Friendship throws out deep roots in honest hearts, D'Artagnan. Believe me, it is only the evil-minded who deny friendship.' they cannot understand it and aramis i have seen him also said d'artagnan but he seemed to me cold ah you have seen aramis said athos turning to d'artagnan a searching look why it is a veritable pilgrimage my dear friend that you are making to the temple of friendship as the poets would say why yes replied D'Artagnan, with embarrassment. "'Aramis, you know,' continued Athos, "'is naturally cold, and then he is always involved in intrigues with women.' 
I believe he is at this moment in a very complicated one, said D'Artagnan. Athos made no reply. He is not curious, thought D'Artagnan. Athos not only failed to reply, he even changed the subject of conversation. You see, said he, calling D'Artagnan's attention to the fact that they had come back to the chateau after an hour's walk. We have made a tour of my domains. All is charming and everything savors of nobility, replied D'Artagnan. At this instant they heard the sound of horses' feet. Tis Raoul who has come back, said Athos, and we can now hear how the poor child is. In fact, the young man appeared at the gate, covered with dust, entered the courtyard, leaped from his horse, which he consigned to the charge of a groom, and then went to greet the Count and D'Artagnan. Monsieur, said Athos, placing his hand on D'Artagnan's shoulder, Monsieur is the Chevalier d'Artagnan, of whom you have often heard me speak, Raoul. Monsieur, said the young man, saluting again and more profoundly, Monsieur le Comte has pronounced your name before me as an example whenever he wished to speak of an intrepid and generous gentleman. That little compliment could not fail to move D'Artagnan. He extended a hand to Raoul and said, My young friend, all the praises that are given me should be passed on to the Count here, for he has educated me in everything, and it is not his fault that his pupil profited so little from his instructions. But he will make it up in you, I'm sure. I like your manner, Raoul, and your politeness has touched me. Athos was more delighted than can be told. He looked at D'Artagnan with an expression of gratitude, and then bestowed on Raoul one of those strange smiles, of which children are so proud when they receive them. Now, said D'Artagnan to himself, noticing that silent play of countenance, I am sure of it. I hope the accident has been of no consequence. They don't know yet, sir, on account of the swelling, but the doctor is afraid some tendon has been injured. At this moment a little boy, half-peasant, half-footboy, came to announce supper. Athos led his guest into a dining-room of moderate size, the windows of which opened on one side on a garden, on the other on a hot-house full of magnificent flowers. D'Artagnan glanced at the dinner service. The plate was magnificent, old and appertaining to the family. D'Artagnan stopped to look at a sideboard on which was a superb ewer of silver. "'That workmanship is divine!' he exclaimed. "'Yes, a chef d'oeuvre of the great Florentine sculptor, Benvenuto Cellini,' replied Athos. "'What battle does it represent?' "'That of Marignan, just at the point where one of my forefathers is offering his sword to Francis I, who has broken his. It was on that occasion that my ancestor, Angeron de la Fere, was made a knight of the Order of St. Michael.' besides which the king, fifteen years afterward, gave him also this ewer and a sword which you may have seen formerly in my house, also a lovely specimen of workmanship. Men were giants in those times, said Athos. Now we are pygmies in comparison. Let us sit down to supper. Call Charles, he added, addressing the boy who waited. My good Charles, I particularly recommend to your care Planchet, the laquais of Monsieur d'Artagnan. He likes good wine. Now you have the key of the cellar. He has slept a long time on a hard bed, so he won't object to a soft one. Take every care of him, I beg you. Charles bowed and retired. You think of everything, said d'Artagnan, 
and I thank you for Planchet, my dear Athos. Raoul started on hearing this name, and looked at the Count to be quite sure that it was he whom the lieutenant thus addressed. "'That name sounds strange to you,' said Athos, smiling. "'It was my nom de guerre, when Monsieur d'Artagnan, two other gallant friends, and myself performed some feats of arms at the siege of La Rochelle, under the deceased cardinal and Monsieur de Bassompierre. My friend is still so kind as to address me by that old and well-beloved appellation, which makes my heart glad when I hear it. "'Tis an illustrious name,' said the lieutenant, and had one day triumphal honors paid to it. "'What do you mean, sir?' inquired Raoul. "'You have not forgotten St. Gervais, Athos, and the napkin which was converted into a banner.' And then he related to Raoul the story of the bastion, and Raoul fancied he was listening to one of those deeds of arms belonging to days of chivalry so gloriously recounted by Tasso and Ariosto. "'D'Artagnan does not tell you, Raoul,' said Athos in his turn, "'that he was reckoned one of the finest swordsmen of his time, a knuckle of iron, a wrist of steel, a sure eye, and a glance of fire. That's what his adversary met with. He was eighteen, only three years older than you are, Raoul, when I saw him set to work, pitted against tried men. "'And did Monsieur d'Artagnan come off the conqueror?' asked the young man with glistening eye. "'I killed one man, if I recollect rightly,' replied d'Artagnan, with a look of inquiry directed at Athos. "'Another I disarmed or wounded, I don't remember which.' "'Wounded,' said Athos. "'It was a phenomenon of skill.' The young man would willingly have prolonged this conversation far into the night, but Athos pointed out to him that his guest must need repose. D'Artagnan would fain have declared that he was not fatigued, but Athos insisted on his retiring to his chamber, conducted thither by Raoul. End of chapter 14 Recording by John Van Stan Savannah, Georgia Chapter 15 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Athos as a Diplomatist D'Artagnan retired to bed, not to sleep, but to think over all he had heard that evening. Being naturally good-hearted and having had once a liking for Athos, which had grown into a sincere friendship, he was delighted at thus meeting a man full of intelligence and moral strength instead of a drunkard. He admitted without annoyance the continued superiority of Athos over himself, devoid as he was of that jealousy which might have saddened a less generous disposition. He was delighted also that the high qualities of Athos appeared to promise favorably for his mission. Nevertheless, it seemed to him that Athos was not in all respects sincere and frank. Who was the youth he had adopted, and who bore so striking a resemblance to him? What could explain Athos having re-entered the world, and the extreme sobriety he had observed at table? The absence of Grimaud, whose name had never once been uttered by Athos, gave D'Artagnan uneasiness. It was evident either that he no longer possessed the confidence of his friend, or that Athos was bound by some invisible chain, or that he had been forewarned of the lieutenant's visit. He could not help thinking of Monsieur Rochefort, whom he had seen in Notre-Dame. Could de Rochefort have forestalled him with Athos? 
Again, the moderate fortune which Athos possessed, concealed as it was, so skillfully, seemed to show a regard for appearances and to betray a latent ambition which might be easily aroused. The clear and vigorous intellect of Athos would render him more open to conviction than a less able man would be. He would enter into the minister's schemes with the more ardor because his natural activity would be doubled by necessity. Resolved to seek an explanation on all these points on the following day, D'Artagnan, in spite of his fatigue, prepared for an attack and determined that it should take place after breakfast. He determined to cultivate the goodwill of the youth Raoul, and either whilst fencing with him or when out shooting, to extract from his simplicity some information which would connect the Athos of old times with the Athos of the present. But D'Artagnan, at the same time, being a man of extreme caution, was quite aware what injury he should do himself if by any indiscretion or awkwardness he should betray his maneuvering to the experienced eye of Athos. Besides, to tell truth, whilst D'Artagnan was quite disposed to adopt a subtle course against the cunning of Aramis or the vanity of Porthos, he was ashamed to equivocate with Athos, true-hearted, open Athos. It seemed to him that if Porthos and Aramis deemed him superior to them in the arts of diplomacy, they would like him all the better for it, but that Athos, on the contrary, would despise him. Ah, why is it not Grimaud, the taciturn Grimaud, here? thought D'Artagnan. There are so many things his silence would have told me with Grimaud's silence was another form of eloquence. There reigned a perfect stillness in the house. D'Artagnan had heard the door shut and the shutters barred. The dogs became in their turn silent. At last a nightingale, lost in a thicket of shrubs, in the midst of its most melodious cadences, had fluted low and lower into stillness and fallen asleep. Not a sound was heard in the castle, except of a footstep up and down in the chamber above, as he supposed, the bedroom of Athos. "'He is walking about and thinking,' thought D'Artagnan. "'But of what?' It is impossible to know. Everything else might be guessed, but not that. At length, Athos went to bed, apparently, for the noise ceased. Silence and fatigue together overcame D'Artagnan, and sleep overtook him also. He was not, however, a good sleeper. Scarcely a dawn gilded his window curtains when he sprang out of bed and opened the windows. Somebody, he perceived, was in the courtyard, moving stealthily. True to his custom of never passing anything over that it was within his power to know, D'Artagnan looked out of the window and perceived the close red coat and brown hair of Raoul. The young man was opening the door of the stable. He then, with noiseless haste, took out the horse that he had ridden on the previous evening, saddled and bridled it himself, and led the animal into the alley to the right of the kitchen garden, opened a side door which conducted him to a bridle road, shut it after him, and D'Artagnan saw him pass by like a dart, bending as he went beneath the pendant flowery branches of maple and acacia. The road, as D'Artagnan had observed, was the way to Blois. So, thought the Gascon, here's a young blade who has already his love affair, who doesn't at all agree with Athos in his hatred to the fair sex. He's not going to hunt, for he has neither dogs nor arms. He's not going on a message, for he goes secretly. Why does he go in secret? 
Is he afraid of me or of his father? For I am sure the Count is his father. By Jove, I shall know about that soon, for I shall soon speak out to Athos. Day was now advanced. All the noises that had ceased the night before reawakened, one after the other. The bird on the branch, the dog in his kennel, the sheep in the field, the boats moored in the Loire, even became alive and vocal. The latter, leaving the shore, abandoned themselves gaily to the current. The Gascon gave a last twirl to his mustache, a last turn to his hair, brushed from habit, the brim of his hat with the sleeve of his doublet, and went downstairs. Scarcely had he descended the last step of the threshold, when he saw Athos bent down toward the ground, as if he were looking for a crown-piece in the dust. "'Good morning, my dear host,' cried D'Artagnan. "'Good day to you. Have you slept well?' "'Excellently, Athos. But what are you looking for? You are perhaps a tulip-fancier?' <laughs> "'My dear friend, if I am, you must not laugh at me for being so. In the country people alter.' One gets to like, without knowing it, all those beautiful objects that God causes to spring from the earth, which are despised in cities. I was looking anxiously for some iris roots I planted here, close to this reservoir, and which someone has trampled upon this morning. These gardeners are the most careless people in the world. In bringing the horse out to the water, they've allowed him to walk over the border." D'Artagnan began to smile. "'Ah, you think so, do you?' And he took his friend along the alley, where a number of tracks like those which had trampled down the flower-beds were visible. "'Here are the horses' hooves again, it seems, Athos,' he said carelessly. "'Yes, indeed. The marks are recent.' "'Quite so,' replied the lieutenant. "'Who went out this morning?' Athos asked uneasily. "'Has any horse got loose?' "'Not likely,' answered the Gascon. "'These marks are regular.' "'Where is Raoul?' asked Athos. "'How is it that I have not seen him?' "'Hush!' exclaimed D'Artagnan, putting his finger on his lips, and he related what he had seen, watching Athos all the while. "'Ah, he's gone to Blois, the poor boy.' "'Wherefore?' "'Ah!' to inquire after the little lavaliere she has sprained her foot you know you think he has i am sure of it said athos don't you see that raoul is in love indeed with whom with a child seven years old dear friend at raoul's age the heart is so expansive that it must encircle one object or another fancied or real well his love is half real, half fanciful. She is the prettiest little creature in the world, with flaxen hair, blue eyes, at once saucy and languishing. But what say you to Raoul's fancy? Nothing. I laugh at Raoul, but this first desire of the heart is imperious. I remember just at his age how deep in love I was with a Grecian statue, which our good king, then Henry the Fourth, gave my father insomuch that I was mad with grief when they told me that the story of Pygmalion was nothing but a fable. It is mere want of occupation. You do not make Raoul work, so he takes his own way of employing himself. Exactly. Therefore I think of sending him away from here. 
you will be wise to do so. No doubt of it, but it will break his heart. So long as three or four years ago he used to adorn and adore his little idol, whom he will some day fall in love with in right earnest, if he remains here, the parents of little La Valliere have for a long time perceived and been amused at it. Now they began to look concerned. Nonsense! However, Raoul must be diverted from this fancy. Send him away, or you will never make a man of him. I think I shall send him to Paris. So, thought D'Artagnan, and it seemed to him that the moment for attack had arrived. Suppose, he said, we roughly chalk out a career for this young man. I wish to consult you about something. Do so. Do you think it is time for us to enter the service? But are you not still in the service, you, D'Artagnan? I meant active service. Our former life has it still no attractions for you. Would you not be happy to begin anew in my society, and in that of Porthos, of the exploits of our youth? Do you propose to me to do so, D'Artagnan? Decidedly and honestly. On whose side? asked Athos, fixing his clear, benevolent glance on the countenance of the Gascon. Ah! devil take it you speak in earnest and must have a definite answer listen d'artagnan there is but one person or rather one cause to whom a man like me can be useful that of the king exactly answered the musketeer yes but let us understand each other returned athos seriously if by the cause of the king you mean that of monsieur de mazarin we do not understand each other. I don't say exactly, answered the Gascon, confused. Come, D'Artagnan, don't let us play a sidelong game. Your hesitation, your evasion, tells me at once on whose side you are. For that party no one dares openly to recruit, and when people recruit for it, it is with averted eyes and humble voice. Ah, my dear Athos! You know that I am not alluding to you. You are the pearl of brave, bold men. I speak of that spiteful and intriguing Italian, of the pedant, who's tried to put on his own head a crown which he stole from under a pillow, of the scoundrel who calls his party the party of the king, who wants to send the princes of the blood to prison, not daring to kill them as our great cardinal, our cardinal did, of the miser who weighs his gold pieces and keeps the clipped ones for fear, though he is rich of losing them at play next morning, of the impudent fellow who insults the queen, as they say, so much the worse for her, and who is going in three months to make war upon us, in order that he may retain his pensions. Is that the master whom you propose to me? I thank you, D'Artagnan. You are more impetuous than you were, returned D'Artagnan. Age has warmed, not chilled your blood, who informed you this was the master I proposed to you? Devil take it, he muttered to himself. Don't let me betray my secrets to a man not inclined to entertain them. Well, then, said Athos, what are your schemes? What do you propose? Zounds, nothing more than natural. You live on your estate, happy in golden mediocrity. Porthos has perhaps sixty thousand franc income. 
Aramis is always fifty duchesses quarreling over the priest, as they quarreled formerly over the musketeer, but I, what have I in the world? I have worn my cuirass these twenty years, kept down in this inferior rank without going forward or backward, hardly half living. In fact, I am dead. Well, when there is some idea of being resuscitated, you say he's a scoundrel, an impudent fellow, a miser, a bad master, by Jove! I am of your opinion, but find me a better one, or give me the means of living. Athos was for a few moments thoughtful. Good. D'Artagnan is for Mazarin, he said to himself. From that moment he grew very guarded. On his side, D'Artagnan became more cautious also. You spoke to me, Athos resumed, of Porthos. Have you persuaded him to seek his fortune? But he has wealth, I believe, already. Doubtless he has, but such is man. We always want something more than we already have. What does Porthos wish for? To be a baron. <laughs> True, I forgot said Athos, laughing. "'Tis true,' thought the Gascon. "'Where has he heard it? Does he correspond with Aramis?' "'Ah! If I knew that he did, I should know all.' The conversation was interrupted by the entrance of Raoul. "'Is our little neighbor worse?' asked D'Artagnan, seeing a look of vexation on the face of the youth. "'Ah, sir,' replied Raoul, her fall is a very serious one, and without any ostensible injury. The physician fears she will be lame for life. This is terrible, said Athos. And what makes me all the more wretched, sir, is that I was the cause of this misfortune. How so? asked Athos. It was to run to meet me that she leapt from that pile of wood. There's only one remedy, dear Raoul that is, to marry her as a compensation," remarked D'Artagnan. "'Ah, sir,' answered Raoul, "'you joke about a real misfortune. That is cruel indeed.' The good understanding between the two friends was not in the least altered by the morning skirmish. They breakfasted with a good appetite, looking now and then at poor Raoul, who with moist eyes and a full heart scarcely ate at all. After breakfast two letters arrived for Athos who read them with profound attention, whilst D'Artagnan could not restrain himself from jumping up several times on seeing him read these epistles, in one of which, there being at the time a very strong light, he perceived the fine writing of Aramis. The other was in a feminine hand, long and crossed. "'Come,' said D'Artagnan to Raoul, seeing that Athos wished to be alone, "'come, let us take a turn in the fencing gallery. That will amuse you.' and they both went into a low room where there were foils, gloves, masks, breastplates, and all the accessories for a fencing match. In a quarter of an hour, Athos joined them, and at the same moment Charles brought in a letter for D'Artagnan, which a messenger had just desired might be instantly delivered. It was now Athos's turn to take a sly look. D'Artagnan read the letter with apparent calmness and said, shaking his head, "'See, dear friend, what is to belong to the army.' Faith, you are indeed right not to return to it. Monsieur de Treville is ill, so my company can't do without me. There, my leave is at an end. Do you return to Paris? asked Athos quickly. Egad, 
yes but why don't you come there also athos colored a little and answered should i go i shall be delighted to see you there hello planchet cried the gascon from the door we must set out in ten minutes give the horses some hay then turning to athos he added i seem to miss something here i am really sorry to go away without having seen grimaud grimaud replied athos i am surprised you have never so much as asked after him i have lent him to a friend who will understand the signs he makes returned d'artagnan i hope so the friends embraced cordially d'artagnan pressed raoul's hand will you not come with me he said i shall pass by blois raoul turned toward athos who showed him by a secret sign that he did not wish him to go no monsieur replied the young man i will remain with monsieur le comte adieu then to both my good friends said d'artagnan may god preserve you as we used to say when we said good-bye to each other in the late cardinal's time athos waved his hand raoul bowed and d'artagnan and planchet set out the count followed them with his eyes his hands resting on the shoulders of the youth whose height was almost equal to his own but as soon as they were out of sight he said raoul we set out to-night for paris huh cried the young man turning pale you may go and offer your adieu and mine to madame de saint remy i shall wait for you here till seven the young man bent low with an expression of sorrow and gratitude mingled and retired in order to saddle his horse as to d'artagnan scarcely on his side was he out of sight when he drew from his pocket a letter which he read over again return immediately to paris j m the epistle is laconic said d'artagnan and if there had not been a postscript probably i should not have understood it but happily there is a postscript and he read that welcome postscript which made him forget the abruptness of the letter p s go to the king's treasurer at blois tell him your name and show him this letter you will receive two hundred pistoles assuredly said d'artagnan i admire this piece of prose the cardinal writes better than i thought come planchet let us pay a visit to the king's treasurer and then set off toward paris sir toward paris and they set out at as hard a canter as their horses could maintain end of chapter 15 recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter 16 of the d'artagnan romances volume 2 20 years after by alexandre dumas translated by william robson this librivox recording is in the public domain the duc de beaufort the circumstances that had hastened the return of d'artagnan to paris were as follows one evening when mazarin according to custom went to visit the queen in passing the guard chamber he heard loud voices wishing to know on what topic the soldiers were conversing he approached with his wonted wolf-like step pushed open the door and put his head close to the chink there was a dispute among the guards i tell you one of them was saying that if Coissel predicted that, tis good as true. I know nothing about it, but I have heard say that he's not only an astrologer, but a magician. Deuce take it, friend. If he's one of thy friends, thou wilt ruin him in saying so. 
Why? Because he may be tried for it. Ah, absurd! They don't burn sorcerers nowadays. No, tis not a long time since the late cardinal burnt Urban Grandier, though. My friend, Urban Grandier wasn't a sorcerer. He was a learned man. He didn't predict the future. He knew the past, often a more dangerous thing. Mazarin nodded an assent, but wishing to know what this prediction was, about which they disputed, he remained in the same place. "'I don't say,' resumed the guard, "'that Coysel is not a sorcerer, but I say that if his prophecy gets wind, it's a sure way to prevent its coming true.' "'How so?' "'Why, in this way, if Coysel says loud enough for the cardinal to hear him, on such or such a day such a prisoner will escape.' "'Tis plain that the cardinal will take measures of precaution, and that the prisoner will not escape.' "'Good Lord,' said another guard, who might have been thought asleep on a bench, but who had lost not a syllable of the conversation, "'do you suppose that men can escape their destiny? If it is written yonder in heaven that the Duc de Beaufort is to escape, he will escape, and all the precautions of the cardinal will not prevent it.' Mazarin started. He was an Italian, and therefore superstitious. He walked straight into the midst of the guards, who on seeing him were silent. "'What were you saying?' he asked with his flattering manner. "'That Monsieur de Beaufort has escaped, were you not?' "'Oh, no, my lord,' said the incredulous soldier. "'He's well guarded now. We only said he would escape.' "'Who said so?' "'Repeat your story, St. Laurent,' replied the man, turning to the originator of the tale. Uh, "'My lord,' said the guard, "'I have simply mentioned the prophecy I heard from a man named Coysel, who believes that, be he ever so closely watched and guarded, the Duc de Beaufort will escape before Whitsuntide.' "'Coysel is a madman,' returned the cardinal. "'No,' replied the soldier, tenacious in his credulity. He has foretold many things which have come to pass. For instance, that the queen would have a son, that Monsieur Coligny would be killed in a duel with the Duc de Guise, and finally, that the coadjutor would be made cardinal. Well, the queen has not only one son, but two. Then Monsieur de Coligny was killed, and... Yes, said Mazarin, but the coadjutor is not yet made cardinal. No, my lord, but he will be, answered the guard. Mazarin made a grimace, as if he meant to say, but he does not wear the cardinal's cap. Then he added, So, my friend, it's your opinion that Monsieur de Beaufort will escape? "'That's my idea, my lord, and if your eminence were to offer to make me at this moment governor of the castle of Vincennes, I should refuse it. After Whitsuntide it would be another thing.' "'There is nothing so convincing as a firm conviction. It has its own effect upon the most incredulous, and far from being incredulous, Mazarin was superstitious. He went away thoughtful and anxious, and returned to his own room.' where he summoned Banouin and desired him to fetch thither in the morning the special guard he had placed over Monsieur de Beaufort, and to awaken him whenever he should arrive. 
The guard had, in fact, touched the cardinal in the tenderest point. During the whole five years in which the Duc de Beaufort had been in prison, not a day had passed in which the cardinal had not felt a secret dread of his escape. It was not possible, as he knew well, to confine for the whole of his life the grandson of Henry the Fourth, especially when this young prince was scarcely thirty years of age. But, however, and whensoever he did escape, what hatred he must cherish against him to whom he owed his long imprisonment, who had taken him rich, brave, glorious, beloved by women, feared by men, to cut off his life's best, happiest years, for it is not life, it is merely existence in prison. Meantime, Mazarin redoubled his surveillance over the duke, but like the miser in the fable, he could not sleep for thinking of his treasure. Often he awoke in the night, suddenly dreaming that he had been robbed of Monsieur de Beaufort. Then he inquired about him and had the vexation of hearing that the prisoner played, drank, sang, but whilst playing, drinking, singing, he often stopped short to vow that Mazarin should pay dear for all the amusements he had forced him to enter into at Vincennes. So much did this one idea haunt the cardinal even in his sleep, that when at seven in the morning Banouin came to arouse him, his first words were, "'Well, what's the matter? Has Monsieur de Beaufort escaped from Vincennes?' "'I don't think so, my lord,' said Banouin. "'But you will hear about him, for La Ramée is here, and awaits the commands of your eminence.' "'Tell him to come in.' said Mazarin, arranging his pillows so that he might receive the visitor sitting up in bed. The officer entered, a large fat man with an open physiognomy. His air of perfect serenity made Mazarin uneasy. "'Approach, sir,' said the cardinal. The officer obeyed. "'Do you know what they are saying here?' "'No, your eminence.' "'Well,' They say that Monsieur de Beaufort is going to escape from Vincennes, if he has not done so already. The officer's face expressed complete stupefaction. He opened at once his little eyes and his great mouth, to inhale better the joke his eminence deigned to address to him, and ended by a burst of laughter, so violent that his great limbs shook in hilarity as they would have done in an egg. "'Escape, my lord! Escape! Your eminence does not know, then, where Monsieur de Beaufort is?' "'Yes, I do, sir. In the donjon of Vincennes.' "'Yes, sir, in a room, the walls of which are seven feet thick, with grated windows, each bar as thick as my arm.' "'Sir,' replied Mazarin, with perseverance one may penetrate through a wall with a watch-spring one may saw through an iron bar then my lord does not know that there are eight guards about him four in his chamber four in the antechamber and that they never leave him but he leaves his room he plays at tennis at the mall sir those amusements are allowed but if your eminence wishes it we will discontinue the permission oh no no cried mazarin fearing that should his prisoner ever leave his prison he would be the more exasperated against him if he thus retrenched his amusement 
He then asked with whom he played. "'My lord, either with the officers of the guard, with the other prisoners, or with me.' "'But does he not approach the walls while playing?' "'Your eminence doesn't know those walls. They are sixty feet high, and I doubt if Monsieur de Beaufort is sufficiently weary of life to risk his neck by jumping off.' Hum said the cardinal, beginning to feel more comfortable. "'You mean to say, then, my dear Monsieur La Ramée, "'that unless Monsieur de Beaufort can contrive to metamorphose himself into a little bird, "'I will continue answerable for him.' "'Take care. You assert a great deal,' said Mazarin. "'Monsieur de Beaufort told the guards who took him to Vincennes "'that he had often thought what he should do "'in case he were put into a prison, "'and that he found that forty ways of escaping.' "'My lord, if among these forty there had been one good way, "'he would have been out long ago.' "'Come, come, not such a fool as I fancied,' thought Mazarin. "'Besides, my lord,' must remember that monsieur de chavigny is governor of vincennes continued la ramee and that monsieur de chavigny is not friendly to monsieur de beaufort yes but monsieur de chavigny is sometimes absent when he is absent i am there but when you leave him for instance oh when i leave him i place in my stead a bold fellow who aspires to be his majesty's special guard i promise you he keeps a good watch over the prisoner during the three weeks that he has been with me i have only had to reproach him with one thing being too severe with the prisoners and who is this cerberus a certain monsieur grimaud my lord and what was he before he went to vincennes he was in the country as i was told by the person who recommended him to me and who recommended this man to you the steward of the duc de grammont he is not a gossip i hope lord a mercy my lord i thought for a long time that he was dumb he answers only by signs it seems his former master accustomed him to that. Well, dear Monsieur La Romée, replied the cardinal, let him prove a true and thankful keeper, and we will shut our eyes upon his rural misdeeds and put on his back a uniform to make him respectable, and in the pockets of that uniform some pistoles to drink to the king's health. Mazarin was large in promises, quite unlike the virtuous Monsieur Grimaud, so bepraised by La Romée, for he said nothing and did much. It was now nine o'clock. The cardinal therefore got up, perfumed himself, dressed, and went to the queen to tell her what had detained him. The queen, who was scarcely less afraid of Monsieur de Beaufort than the cardinal himself, and who was almost as superstitious as he was, made him repeat word for word all La Romée's praises of his deputy. Then, when the cardinal had ended, "'Alas, sir, why have we not a Grimaud near every prince?' "'Patience,' replied Mazarin with his Italian smile. 
that may happen one day but in the meantime well in the meantime i shall still take precautions and he wrote to d'artagnan to hasten his return end of chapter sixteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter Seventeen of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume Two, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Duke de Beaufort amused his leisure hours in the donjon of Vincennes. The captive, who was the source of so much alarm to the cardinal and whose means of escape disturbed the repose of the whole court, was wholly unconscious of the terror he caused at the Palais Royal he had found himself so strictly guarded that he soon perceived the fruitlessness of any attempt at escape his vengeance therefore consisted in coining curses on the head of mazarin he even tried to make some verses on him but soon gave up the attempt for monsieur de beaufort had not only not received from heaven the gift of versifying he had the greatest difficulty in expressing himself in prose the duke was the grandson of henry the fourth and gabrielle d'estrees as good-natured as brave as proud and above all as gascon as his ancestor but less elaborately educated after having been for some time after the death of louis the thirteenth the favorite the confidant the first man in short at court he had been obliged to yield his place to mazarin and so became the second in influence and favor and eventually as he was stupid enough to be vexed at this change of position the queen had had him arrested and sent to Vincennes in charge of Guitant, who made his appearance in these pages in the beginning of this history, and whom we shall see again. It is understood, of course, that when we say the queen, Mazarin is meant. During the five years of this seclusion, which would have improved and matured the intellect of any other man, Monsieur de Beaufort, had he not affected to brave the cardinal, despise princes, and walk alone without adherents or disciples, would either have regained his liberty or made partisans. But these considerations never occurred to the duke, and every day the cardinal received fresh accounts of him which were as unpleasant as possible to the minister. After having failed in poetry, Monsieur de Beaufort tried drawing. He drew portraits with a piece of coal of the cardinal. And as his talents had not enabled him to produce a very good likeness, he wrote under the picture that there might be little doubt regarding the original, quote, portrait of the illustrious coxcomb mazarin monsieur de chavigny the governor of vincennes waited upon the duke to request that he would amuse himself in some other way or that at all events if he drew likenesses he would not put mottoes underneath them the next day the prisoner's room was full of pictures and mottoes monsieur de beaufort in common with many other prisoners was bent upon doing things that were prohibited and the only resource the governor had was one day when the duke was playing at tennis to efface all these drawings consisting chiefly of profiles monsieur de beaufort did not venture to draw the cardinal's fat face the duke thanked monsieur de chavigny for having as he said cleaned his drawing paper for him he then divided the walls of his room into compartments and dedicated each of these compartments to some incident in mazarin's life in one was depicted the illustrious coxcomb receiving a shower of blows from cardinal bentivoglio whose servant he had been another the illustrious mazarin acting the part of ignatius loyola in a tragedy of that name 
a third the illustrious Mazarin stealing the portfolio of Prime Minister from Monsieur de Chevigny, who had expected to have it, a fourth the illustrious coxcomb Mazarin refusing to give Laporte, the young king's valet, clean sheets, and saving that, quote, it was quite enough for the king of France to have clean sheets every three months. The governor, of course, thought proper to threaten his prisoner that if he did not give up drawing such pictures, he should be obliged to deprive him of all the means of amusing himself in that manner. To this, Monsieur de Beaufort replied that since every opportunity of distinguishing himself in arms was taken from him, he wished to make himself celebrated in the arts. Since he could not be a Bayard, he would become a Raphael or a Michelangelo. Nevertheless, one day when Monsieur de Beaufort was walking in the meadow, his fire was put out, his charcoal all removed, taken away, and thus his means of drawing utterly destroyed. The poor duke swore, fell into a rage, yelled, and declared that they wished to starve him to death as they had starved the Maréchal Ornano and the Grand Prior of Vendôme. But he refused to promise that he would not make any more drawings, and remained without any fire in the room all the winter. His next act was to purchase a dog from one of his keepers. With this animal, which he called Pistache, he was often shut up for hours alone, superintending, as everyone supposed, its education. At last, when Pistache was sufficiently well-trained, Monsieur de Beaufort invited the governor and officers of Vincennes to attend a representation which he was going to have in his apartment. The party assembled, the room was lighted with wax lights, and the prisoner, with a bit of plaster he had taken out of the wall of his room, had traced a long white line, representing a cord on the floor. Pistache, on a signal from his master, placed himself on this line, raised himself on his hind paws, and holding in his front paws a wand, with which clothes used to be beaten, he began to dance upon the line with as many contortions as a rope dancer. Having been several times up and down it, he gave the wand back to his master, and began without hesitation to perform the same evolutions over again. The intelligent creature was received with loud applause. The first part of the entertainment being concluded, Pistache was desired to say what o'clock it was. He was showed Monsieur de Chevigny's watch. It was then half-past six. The dog raised and dropped its paw six times. The seventh, he let it remain upraised. Nothing could be better done. A sundial could not have shown the hour with greater precision. Then the question was put to him, who was the best jailer in all the prisons in France? The dog performed three evolutions around the circle and laid himself, with the deepest respect, at the feet of Monsieur de Chavigny, who at first seemed inclined to like the joke and laughed long and loud, but a frown succeeded and he bit his lips with vexation. Then the duke put to Pistache this difficult question, who was the greatest thief in the world? Pistache went again around the circle, but stopped at no one, and at last went to the door and began to scratch and bark. "'See, gentlemen,' said Monsieur de Beaufort, "'this wonderful animal, not finding here what I ask for, seeks it out of doors. You shall, however, have his answer. Pistache, my friend, come here.' is not the greatest thief in the world monsieur the king's secretary le camus who came to paris with twenty francs in his pocket and who now possesses ten millions the dog shook his head then it is not resumed the duke the superintendent emery who gave his son when he was married three hundred thousand francs and a house 
compared to which the Tuileries are a heap of ruins and the Louvre a paltry building. The dog again shook his head as if to say, no. Then, said the prisoner, let's think who it can be. Can it be, can it possibly be? The illustrious coxcomb Mazarin de Piccina, hey? Pistache made violent signs that it was, by raising and lowering his head eight or ten times successively. "'Gentlemen, you see,' said the duke to those present who dared not even smile, "'that it is the illustrious coxcomb, who is the greatest thief in the world, at least according to Pistache. "'Let us go on to another of his exercises. "'Gentlemen,' there was a profound silence in the room when the duke again addressed them, do you not remember the duc de guise taught all the dogs in paris to jump for mademoiselle de pon whom he styled the fairest of the fair pistache is going to show you how superior he is to all other dogs monsieur de chavigny be so good as to lend me your cane monsieur de chavigny handed his cane to monsieur de beaufort monsieur de beaufort placed it horizontally at the height of one foot now pistache my good dog jump the height of this cane for madame de montbazon but interposed monsieur de chavigny it seems to me that pistache is only doing what other dogs have done when they jumped for mademoiselle de pont stop said the duke pistache jump for the queen and he raised his cane six inches higher the dog sprang and in spite of the height jumped lightly over it and now said the duke raising it still six inches higher jump for the king the dog obeyed and jumped quickly over the cane. "'Now then,' said the duke, and as he spoke, lowered the cane almost level with the ground. "'Pistache, my friend, a jump for the illustrious coxcomb Mazarin de Piccina.' The dog turned his back to the cane. "'What?' asked the duke. "'What do you mean?' and he gave him the cane again, first making a semicircle from the head to the tail of Pistache. "'Jump, then, Monsieur Pistache!' But Pistache, as at first, turned round on his legs and stood with his back to the cane. Monsieur de Beaufort made the experiment a third time, but by this time Pistache's patience was exhausted. He threw himself furiously upon the cane, wrested it from the hands of the prince, and broke it with his teeth." Monsieur de Beaufort took the pieces out of his mouth and presented them with great formality to Monsieur de Chevigny, saying that, for that evening, the entertainment was ended, but in three months it should be repeated, when Pistache would have learned a few new tricks. Three days afterward, Pistache was found dead, poisoned. Then the duke said openly that his dog had been killed by a drug with which they meant to poison him, and one day after dinner he went to bed, calling out, that he had pains in his stomach, and that Mazarin had poisoned him. This fresh impertinence reached the ears of the cardinal and alarmed him greatly. The donjon of Vincennes was considered very unhealthy, and Madame de Rambouillet had said that the room in which the Maréchal Ornano and the Grand Prior de Vendôme had died was worth its weight in arsenic, a bon mot which had great success. So it was ordered the prisoner was henceforth to eat nothing that had not previously been tasted, and La Ramee was in consequence placed near him as taster. 
every kind of revenge was practiced upon the duke by the governor in return for the insults of the innocent pistache de chavigny who according to report was a son of richelieu's and had been a creature of the late cardinal's understood tyranny he took from the duke all the steel knives and silver forks and replaced them with silver knives and wooden forks pretending that as he had been informed that the duke was to pass all his life at vincennes he was afraid of his prisoner attempting suicide a fortnight afterward the duke going to the tennis court found two rows of trees about the size of his little finger planted by the roadside he asked what they were for and was told that they were to shade him from the sun on some future day one morning the gardener went to him and told him as if to please him that he was going to plant a bed of asparagus for his especial use now since as everyone knows asparagus takes four years in coming to perfection this civility infuriated monsieur de beaufort at last his patience was exhausted he assembled his keepers and notwithstanding his well-known difficulty of utterance addressed them as follows gentlemen will you permit a grandson of henry the fourth to be overwhelmed with insults and ignominy odds fish as my grandfather used to say i once reigned in paris do you know that i had the king and monsieur the whole of one day in my care the queen at that time liked me and called me the most honest man in the kingdom gentlemen and citizens set me free i shall go to the louvre and strangle mazarin you shall be my bodyguard i will make you all captains with good pensions odds fish on march forward but eloquent as he might be the eloquence of the grandson of henry the fourth did not touch those hearts of stone not one man stirred so monsieur de beaufort was obliged to be satisfied with calling them all kinds of rascals underneath the sun sometimes when monsieur de chavigny paid him a visit the duke used to ask him what he should think if he saw an army of parisians all fully armed appear at vincennes to deliver him from prison my lord answered de chavigny with a low bow i have on the ramparts twenty pieces of artillery and in my casements thirty thousand guns i should bombard the troops till not one grain of gunpowder was unexploded yes but after you had fired off your thirty thousand guns they would take the donjon the donjon being taken i should be obliged to let them hang you at which i should be most unhappy certainly and in his turn the duke bowed low to monsieur de chavigny for myself on the other hand my lord returned the governor when the first rebel should pass the threshold of my postern doors i should be obliged to kill you with my own hand since you were confided peculiarly to my care and as i am obliged to give you up dead or alive and once more he bowed low before his highness these bittersweet pleasantries lasted ten minutes sometimes longer but always finished thus monsieur de chavigny turning toward the door used to call out hello la ramee la ramee came into the room la ramee i recommend monsieur le duc to you particularly treat him as a man of his rank and family ought to be treated that is never leave him alone for an instant la ramee became therefore the duke's dinner guest by compulsion an eternal keeper the shadow of his person but la ramee gay frank convivial fond of play 
a great hand at tennis, had one defect in the duke's eyes, his incorruptibility. Now, although La Ramee appreciated, as of a certain value, the honor of being shut up with a prisoner of so great importance, still the pleasure of living in intimacy with the grandson of Henry IV, hardly compensated for the loss of that which he had experienced in going from time to time to visit his family. One may be a jailer or a keeper, and at the same time a good father and husband. La Ramee adored his wife and children, whom now he could only catch a glimpse of from the top of the wall, when in order to please them they used to walk on the opposite side of the moat. T'was too brief an enjoyment, and La Ramee felt that the gaiety of heart he had regarded as the cause of his health, of which it was perhaps rather the result, would not long survive such a mode of life. He accepted, therefore, with delight, an offer made to him by his friend the steward of the Duc de Grammont, to give him a substitute. He also spoke of it to Monsieur de Chavigny, who promised that he would not oppose it in any way, that is, if he approved of the person proposed. We consider it useless to draw a physical or moral portrait of Grimaud, if, as we hope, our readers have not wholly forgotten the first part of this work. They must have preserved a clear idea of that estimable individual, who is wholly unchanged, except that he is twenty years older, an advance in life that has made him only more silent, although since the change that had been working in himself, Athos had given Grimaud permission to speak. But Grimaud had, for twelve or fifteen years, preserved habitual silence, and a habit of fifteen or twenty years' duration becomes second nature. End of chapter 17 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 18 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson, this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Grimaud begins his functions. Grimaud thereupon presented himself with his smooth exterior at the donjon of Vincennes. Now Monsieur de Chevigny piqued himself on his infallible penetration, for that which almost proved that he was the son of Richelieu was his everlasting pretension. He examined attentively the countenance of the applicant for place, and fancied that the contracted eyebrows, thin lips, hooked nose, and prominent cheekbones of Grimaud were favorable signs. He addressed about twelve words to him. Grimaud answered in four. "'Here's a promising fellow, and it is I who have found out his merits,' said Monsieur de Chevigny. "'Go,' he added, "'and make yourself agreeable to Monsieur la Romay, and tell him that you suit me in all respects.' Grimaud had every quality that could attract a man on duty who wishes to have a deputy. So, after a thousand questions which met with only a word in reply, La Ramee, fascinated by this sobriety in speech, rubbed his hands and engaged Grimaud. "'My orders?' asked Grimaud. "'They are these, never to leave the prisoner alone, to keep away from him every pointed or cutting instrument.' and to prevent his conversing any length of time with the keepers. "'Those are all?' asked Grimaud. "'All now,' replied La Ramee. "'Good,' answered Grimaud, and he went right to the prisoner. The duke was in the act of combing his beard, which he had allowed to grow, as well as his hair, in order to reproach Mazarin with his wretched appearance and condition. 
but having some days previously seen from the top of the donjon Madame de Montbazon pass in her carriage, and still cherishing an affection for that beautiful woman, he did not wish to be to her what he wished to be to Mazarin, and in the hope of seeing her again, had asked for a leaden comb which was allowed him. The comb was to be a leaden one because his beard, like that of most fair people, was rather red. He therefore dyed it thus whilst combing it. As Grimaud entered, he saw this comb on the tea-table. He took it up, and as he took it, he made a low bow. The duke looked at this strange figure with surprise. The figure put the comb in its pocket. "'Ho! Oh, hey! What's that?' cried the duke. "'Who is this creature?' Grimaud did not answer, but bowed a second time. "'Art thou dumb?' cried the duke. Grimaud made a sign that he was not. "'What art thou, then?' answer i command thee said the duke a keeper replied grimaud a keeper reiterated the duke there was nothing wanting in my collection except this gallows bird hello la ramee someone la ramee ran in haste to obey the call who is this wretch who takes my comb and puts it in his pocket asked the duke one of your guards my prince a man of talent and merit whom you will like as i and monsieur de chevigny do i am sure why does he take my comb why do you take my lord's comb asked la ramee grimaud drew the comb from his pocket and passing his fingers over the largest teeth pronounced this one word pointed true said la ramee "'What does the animal say?' asked the duke. "'That the king has forbidden your lordship to have any pointed instrument.' "'Are you mad, La Ramee? You yourself gave me this comb.' "'I was very wrong, my lord, for in giving it to you I acted in opposition to my orders.' The duke looked furiously at Grimaud. "'I perceive that this creature will be my particular aversion,' he muttered. Grimaud, nevertheless, was resolved for certain reasons not at once to come to a full rupture with the prisoner. He wanted to inspire, not a sudden repugnance, but a good, sound, steady hatred. He retired, therefore, and gave place to four guards, who, having breakfasted, could attend on the prisoner. A fresh practical joke now occurred to the duke. He had asked for crawfish for his breakfast on the following morning. He intended to pass the day in making a small gallows and hang one of the finest of these fish in the middle of his room, the red color evidently conveying an allusion to the cardinal, so that he might have the pleasure of hanging Mazarin in effigy without being accused of having hung anything more significant than a crawfish. The day was employed in preparations for the execution. Everyone grows childish in prison but the character of Monsieur de Beaufort was particularly disposed to become so. In the course of his morning's walk, he collected two or three small branches from a tree and found a small piece of broken glass, a discovery that quite delighted him. When he came home, he formed his handkerchief into a loop. Nothing of all this escaped Grimaud, but La Ramee looked on with the curiosity of a father who thinks that he may perhaps get a cheap idea concerning a new toy for his children. The guards looked on it with indifference. When everything was ready, the gallows hung in the middle of the room, the loop made, 
and when the duke had cast a glance upon the plate of crawfish in order to select the finest specimen among them, he looked around for his piece of glass. It had disappeared. "'Who has taken my piece of glass?' asked the duke, frowning. Grimaud made a sign to denote that he had done so. "'What? Thou again? Why didst thou take it?' "'Yes. Why?' asked La Ramee. Grimaud, who held the piece of glass in his hand, said, "'Sharp!' "'True, my lord!' exclaimed La Ramee. "'Ah! Deuce take it! We have a precious fellow here!' "'Monsieur Grimaud,' said the duke, "'for your sake, I beg of you, never come within the reach of my fist!' "'Hush, hush!' cried La Ramee. "'Give me your gibbet, my lord. I will shape it out for you with my knife.' and he took the gibbet and shaped it out as neatly as possible. "'That's it,' said the duke. "'Now make me a little hole in the floor whilst I go and fetch the culprit.' La Ramee knelt down and made a hole in the floor. Meanwhile the duke hung the crawfish up by a thread. Then he placed the gibbet in the middle of the room, bursting with laughter. La Ramee laughed also, and the guards laughed in chorus. Grimaud, however, did not even smile. He approached La Ramee and, showing him the crawfish hung up by the thread, Cardinal, he said, Hung by the order of His Highness the Duke de Beaufort, <laughs> cried the prisoner, laughing violently, and by Master Jacques Christostom La Ramee, the King's Commissioner. La Ramee uttered a cry of horror and rushed toward the gibbet, which he broke at once and threw the pieces out of the window. He was going to throw the crawfish out also when Grimaud snatched it from his hands. "'Good to eat,' he said, and put it in his pocket. This scene so enchanted the duke that at the moment he forgave Grimaud for his part in it, but on reflection he hated him more and more, being convinced he had some evil motive for his conduct. But the story of the crab made a great noise through the interior of the donjon, and even outside. Monsieur de Chevigny, who at heart detested the cardinal, took pains to tell the story to two or three friends who put it into immediate circulation. The prisoner happened to remark among the guards one man with a very good countenance, and he favored this man the more as Grimaud became the more and more odious to him. One morning he took this man on one side and had succeeded in speaking to him, when Grimaud entered and seeing what was going on approached the duke respectfully, but took the guard by the arm. "'Go away,' he said. The guard obeyed. "'You are insupportable!' cried the duke. "'I shall beat you!' Grimaud bowed. "'I will break every bone in your body!' cried the duke. Grimaud bowed, but stepped back. "'Mr. Spy!' cried the duke, more and more enraged. "'I will strangle you with my own hands!' And he extended his hands toward Grimaud, who merely thrust the guard out and shut the door behind him. At the same time he felt the duke's arms on his shoulders like two iron claws, but instead of calling out or defending himself, he placed his forefinger on his lips and said in a low tone, Hush! Smiling as he uttered the word, a gesture, a smile, and a word from Grimaud all at once were so unusual that his highness stopped short, astounded. Grimaud took advantage of that instant to draw from his vest a charming little note with an aristocratic seal, and presented it to the duke without a word. The duke, more and more bewildered, let Grimaud loose and took the note. 
from madame de montbazon he cried grimaud nodded assent the duke tore open the note passed his hands over his eyes for he was dazzled and confused and read my dear duke you may entirely confide in the brave lad who will give you this note he has consented to enter the service of your keeper and to shut himself up at vincennes with you in order to prepare and assist your escape which we are contriving the moment of your deliverance is at hand have patience and courage and remember that in spite of time and absence all your friends continue to cherish you the sentiments they have so long professed and truly entertained yours wholly and most affectionately marie de montbazon p s i signed my full name for i should be vain if i could suppose that after five years of absence you would remember my initials the poor duke became perfectly giddy what for five years he had been wanting a faithful servant a friend a helping hand seemed to have fallen from heaven just when he expected it the least oh dearest marie she thinks of me then after five years of separation heavens there is constancy then turning to grimaud he said and thou my brave fellow thou consentest thus to aid me grimaud signified his assent and you have come here with that purpose grimaud repeated the sign and i was ready to strangle you cried the duke grimaud smiled wait then said the duke fumbling in his pocket wait he continued renewing his fruitless search it shall not be said that such devotion to a grandson of henry the fourth went without recompense the duke's endeavors evinced the best intention in the world but one of the precautions taken at vincennes was that of allowing prisoners to keep no money whereupon grimaud observing the duke's disappointment drew from his pocket a purse filled with gold and handed it to him here is what you are looking for he said the duke opened the purse and wanted to empty it into grimaud's hands but grimaud shook his head thank you monseigneur he said drawing back i am paid the duke went from one surprise to another he held out his hand grimaud drew near and kissed it respectfully the grand manner of athos had left its mark on grimaud what shall we do and when and how to proceed it is now eleven answered grimaud let my lord at two o'clock ask leave to make up a game at tennis with la ramee and let him send two or three balls over the ramparts and then your highness will approach the walls and call out to a man who works in the moat to send them back again i understand said the duke grimaud made a sign that he was going away ah cried the duke will you not accept any money from me i wish my lord would make me one promise what speak tis this when we escape together that i shall go everywhere and be always first for if my lord should be overtaken and caught there's every chance of his being brought back to prison whereas if i am caught the least that can befall me is to be hung true on my honor as a gentleman it shall be as thou dost suggest now resumed grimaud i've only one more thing to ask that your highness will continue to detest me i'll try 
said the duke. At this moment La Ramee, after the interview we have described with the cardinal, entered the room. The duke had thrown himself, as he was wont to do in moments of dullness and vexation, on his bed. La Ramee cast an inquiring look around him, and observing the same signs of antipathy between the prisoner and his guardian, he smiled in token of his inward satisfaction. Then turning to Grimaud, "'Very good, my friend, very good. You have been spoken of in a promising quarter, and you will soon, I hope, have news that will be agreeable to you.' Grimaud saluted in his politest manner and withdrew, as was his custom on the entrance of his superior. "'Well, my lord,' said La Ramee with his rude laugh, "'you still set yourself against this poor fellow.' "'So, tis you, La Ramee, in faith, tis time you come back again. I threw myself on the bed and turned my nose to the wall that I mightn't break my promise and strangle Grimaud.' "'I doubt, however,' said La Ramee, in sprightly allusion to the silence of his subordinate, "'if he has said anything disagreeable to your highness.' Pardieu, you are right, a mute from the east. I swear it was time for you to come back, La Ramee, and I was eager to see you again. Monseigneur is too good, said La Ramee, flattered by the compliment. Yes, continued the duke, really, I feel bored today beyond the power of description. Then let us have a match in the tennis court, exclaimed La Ramee. If you wish it. I am at your service, my lord. I protest, my dear La Ramee, said the duke, that you are a charming fellow and that I would stay forever at Vincennes to have the pleasure of your society. My lord, replied La Ramee, I think if it depended on the cardinal, your wishes would be fulfilled. What do you mean? Have you seen him lately? He sent for me today. Really? to speak to you about me of what else do you imagine he would speak to me really my lord you are his nightmare the duke smiled with bitterness ha la romay if you would but accept my offers i would make your fortune how you would no sooner have left prison than your goods would be confiscated i shall no sooner be out of prison than i shall be master of paris Pshaw! pshaw i cannot hear such things said as that this is a fine conversation with an officer of the king i see my lord i shall be obliged to fetch a second grimaud very well let us say no more about it so you and the cardinal have been talking about me la ramee some day when he sends for you you must let me put on your clothes i will go in your stead i will strangle him and upon my honor if that is made a condition i will return to prison monseigneur i see well that i must call grimaud well i am wrong and what did the equestro pettifogger say about me i admit the word monseigneur because it rhymes with minister what did he say to me he told me to watch you and why so why watch me asked the duke uneasily because an astrologer had predicted that you would escape Ha! an astrologer predicted that said the duke starting in spite of himself oh mon dieu yes those imbeciles of magicians can only imagine things to torment honest people 
and what did you reply to his most illustrious eminence that if the astrologer in question made almanacs i would advise him not to buy one why not because before you could escape you would have to be turned into a bird unfortunately that is true let us go and have a game at tennis la romay my lord i beg your highness's pardon but i must beg for half an hour's leave of absence why because monseigneur mazarin is a prouder man than his highness oh not of such high birth he forgot to ask me to breakfast well shall i send for some breakfast here no my lord i must tell you that the confectioner who lived opposite the castle daddy marteau as they called him well well he sold his business a week ago to a confectioner from paris an invalid ordered country air for his health well what have i to do with that why my good lord this man your highness when he saw me stop before his shop where he has a display of things which would make your mouth water my lord asked me to get him the custom of the prisoners in the donjon i bought said he the business of my predecessor on the strength of his assurance that he supplied the castle whereas on my honor monsieur de chevigny although i've been here a week has not ordered so much as a tartlet but i then replied probably monsieur de chevigny is afraid your pastry is not good my pastry not good well monsieur la ramee you shall judge of it yourself and at once i cannot i replied it is absolutely necessary for me to return to the chateau very well said he go and attend to your affairs since you seem to be in a hurry but come back in half an hour in half an hour yes have you breakfasted faith no well here is a pate that will be ready for you with a bottle of old burgundy so you see my lord since i am hungry i would with your highness's leave and la ramee bent low go then animal said the duke but remember i only allow you half an hour may i promise your custom to the successor of father marteau my lord yes if he does not put mushrooms in his pies thou knowest that mushrooms from the wood of vincennes are fatal to my family la ramee went out but in five minutes one of the officers of the guard entered in compliance with the strict orders of the cardinal that the prisoner should never be left alone a moment but during these five minutes the duke had had time to read again the note from madame de montbazon which proved to the prisoner that his friends were concerting plans for his deliverance but in what way he knew not but his confidence in grimaud whose petty persecutions he now perceived were only a blind increased and he conceived the highest opinion of his intellect and resolved to entrust entirely to his guidance End of chapter 18. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 19 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Pâtés made by the successor of Father Marteau are described. In half an hour, La Ramee returned full of glee like most men who have eaten, and more especially drank to their heart's content. The pâtés were excellent, the wine delicious. The weather was fine, and the game at tennis took place in the open air. 
At two o'clock the tennis balls began, according to Grimaud's directions, to take the direction of the moat, much to the joy of La Ramee, who marked fifteen whenever the duke sent a ball into the moat. And very soon balls were wanting. So many had gone over. La Ramee then proposed to send someone to pick them up. But the duke remarked that it would be losing time, and going near the rampart himself and looking over, he saw a man working in one of the numerous little gardens cleared out by the peasants on the opposite side of the moat. "'Hey, friend!' cried the duke. The man raised his head, and the duke was about to utter a cry of surprise. The peasant, the gardener, was Rochefort, whom he believed to be in the Bastille. "'Well, who's up there?' said the man. "'Be so good as to collect and throw us back our balls,' said the duke. The gardener nodded and began to fling up the balls, which were picked up by La Ramee and the guard. One, however, fell at the duke's feet, and seeing that it was intended for him, he put it into his pocket. La Ramee was in ecstasies at having beaten a prince of the blood. The duke went indoors and retired to bed, where he spent indeed the greater part of every day, as they had taken his books away.' La Ramee carried off all his clothes in order to be certain that the duke would not stir. However, the duke contrived to hide the ball under his bolster, and as soon as the door was closed he tore off the cover of the ball with his teeth and found underneath the following letter. My lord, your friends are watching over you, and the hour of your deliverance is at hand. Ask day after tomorrow to have a pie supplied you by the new confectioner opposite the castle, and who is no other than Noirmont, your former maitre d'hôtel. Do not open the pie till you are alone. I hope you will be satisfied with its contents. Your Highness's most devoted servant, in the Bastille as elsewhere, Comte de Rochefort. The duke, who had latterly been allowed a fire, burned the letter, but kept the ball and went to bed, hiding the ball under his bolster. La Ramee entered. He smiled kindly on the prisoner, for he was an excellent man and had taken a great liking for the captive prince. He endeavored to cheer him up in his solitude. "'Ah, my friend,' cried the duke, "'you are so good. If I could but do as you do, and eat pâtés and drink burgundy at the house of Father Marteau's successor.' "'Tis true, my lord,' answered La Ramee, "'that his pâtés are famous, and his wine magnificent.' "'In any case,' said the duke, "'his cellar and kitchen might easily excel those of Monsieur de Chevigny.' "'Well, my lord,' said La Ramee, falling into the trap, "'what is there to prevent your trying them? "'Besides, I have promised him your patronage.' "'You are right,' said the duke. "'If I am to remain here permanently, "'as Monsieur Mazarin has kindly given me to understand, "'I must provide myself with a diversion for my old age. "'I must turn gourmand.' "'My lord,' said La Ramee, if you will take a bit of good advice, don't put that off till you are old. Good, said the Duke de Beaufort to himself. Every man, in order that he may lose his heart and soul, must receive from celestial bounty one of the seven capital sins, perhaps two. It seems that Master La Ramee's is gluttony. Let us then take advantage of it. Then aloud, Well, my dear La Ramee, the day after tomorrow is a holiday. "'Yes, my lord. Pentecost.' "'Will you give me a lesson the day after tomorrow? "'In what?' "'In gastronomy.' "'Willingly, my lord.' "'But tete-a-tete, -tete, 
send the guards to take their meal in the canteen of Monsieur de Chevigny. We'll have a supper here under your direction. Hum, said La Ramee. The proposal was seductive, but La Ramee was an old stager, acquainted with all the traps a prisoner was likely to set. Monsieur de Beaufort had said that he had forty ways of getting out of prison. Did this proposed breakfast cover some stratagem? He reflected, but he remembered that he himself would have charge of the food and the wine, and therefore that no powder could be mixed with the food, no drug with the wine. As to getting him drunk, the duke couldn't hope to do that, and he laughed at the mere thought of it. Then an idea came to him which harmonized everything. The duke had followed with anxiety La Ramee's unspoken soliloquy, reading it from point to point upon his face, but presently the exempt's face suddenly brightened. "'Well?' he asked. "'That will do, will it not?' "'Yes, my lord, on one condition.' "'What?' "'That Grimaud shall wait on us at table.' Nothing could be more agreeable to the duke. However, he had presence of mind enough to exclaim, "'To the devil with your Grimaud! He will spoil the feast.' "'And I will direct him to stand behind your chair, and since he doesn't speak, your highness will neither see nor hear him, and with a little effort can imagine him a hundred miles away.' "'Do you know, my friend?' I find one thing very evident in all this. You distrust me. My lord, the day after tomorrow is Pentecost. Well, what is Pentecost to me? Are you afraid that the Holy Spirit will come as a tongue of fire to open the doors of my prison? No, my lord, but I have already told you what that damned magician predicted. And what was it? That the day of Pentecost would not pass without your highness being out of Vincennes. You believe in sorcerers, then, you fool. I, I mind them no more than that. And he snapped his fingers. But it is my lord Giulio who cares about them. As an Italian, he is superstitious. The duke shrugged his shoulders. Well, then, with well-acted good humor, I allow Grimaud, but no one else. You must manage it all. Order whatever you like for supper. The only thing I specify is one of those pies. And tell the confectioner that I will promise him my custom if he excels this time in his pies, not only now, but when I leave my prison. Then you think you will some day leave it? said La Ramee. The devil, replied the prince, surely at the death of Mazarin. I am fifteen years younger than he is. At Vincenna, tis true, one lives faster. My lord, replied La Ramee, my lord, or die sooner, for it comes to the same thing. La Ramee was going out. He stopped, however, at the door for an instant. Whom does your highness wish me to send to you? Anyone except Grimaud. The officer of the guard, then, with his chessboard? Yes. Five minutes afterward the officer entered, and the duke seemed to be immersed in the sublime combinations of chess. A strange thing is the mind, and is wonderful what revolutions may be wrought in it by a sign, a word, a hope. The duke had been five years in prison, and now to him, looking back upon them, those five years, which had passed so slowly, seemed not so long a time as were the two days. 
the forty-eight hours which still parted him from the time fixed for his escape. Besides, there was one thing that engaged his most anxious thought. In what way was the escape to be effected? They had told him to hope for it, but had not told him what was to be hidden in the mysterious pâté, and what friends awaited him without. He had friends, then, after five years in prison. If that were so, he was indeed a highly favored prince. He forgot that besides his friends of his own sex, a woman, strange to say, had remembered him. It is true that she had not perhaps been scrupulously faithful to him, but she had remembered him. That was something. So the duke had more than enough to think about. Accordingly, he fared at chess as he had fared at tennis. He made blunder upon blunder, and the officer with whom he played found him easy game. But his successive defeats did service to the duke in one way. They killed time for him till eight o'clock in the evening. Then would come night, and with night, sleep. So at least the duke believed. But sleep is a capricious fairy, and it is precisely when one invokes her presence that she is most likely to keep him waiting. The duke waited until midnight, turning on his mattress like St. Lawrence on his gridiron. Finally he slept. But at daybreak he awoke. Wild dreams had disturbed his repose. He dreamed that he was endowed with wings. He wished to fly away. For a time these wings supported him, but when he reached a certain height, this new aid failed him. His wings were broken, and he seemed to sink into a bottomless abyss, whence he awoke, bathed in perspiration and nearly as much overcome as if he had really fallen. He fell asleep again, and another vision appeared. He was in a subterranean passage, by which he was to leave Vincennes. Grimaud was walking before him with a lantern. By degrees the passage narrowed, yet the duke continued his course. At last it became so narrow that the fugitive tried in vain to proceed. The sides of the wall seemed to close in, even to press against him. He made fruitless efforts to go on. It was impossible. Nevertheless, he still saw Grimaud with his lantern in front, advancing. He wished to call out to him, but could not utter a word. Then, at the other extremity, he heard the footsteps of those who were pursuing him. These steps came on, came fast. He was discovered. All hope of flight was gone. Still the walls seemed to be closing on him. They appeared to be in concert with his enemies. At last he heard the voice of La Ramee. La Ramee took his hand and laughed aloud. He was captured again and conducted to the low and vaulted chamber in which Ornano, Poilorraine, and his uncle had died. Their three graves were there, rising above the ground, and a fourth was also there, yawning for its ghastly tenant. The duke was obliged to make as many efforts to awake as he had done to go to sleep, and La Ramee found him so pale and fatigued that he inquired whether he was ill. "'In fact,' said one of the guards who had remained in the chamber and had been kept awake by a toothache brought on by the dampness of the atmosphere. My lord has had a very restless night, and two or three times while dreaming he called for help. "'What is the matter with your highness?' asked La Ramee. "'Tis your fault, you simpleton,' answered the duke. "'With your idle nonsense yesterday about escaping, you worried me so that I dreamt that I was trying to escape and broke my neck in doing so. La Ramee laughed. Come, he said, tis a warning from heaven. Never commit such an imprudence as to try to escape, except in your dreams. And you are right, my dear La Ramee, 
said the duke, wiping away the sweat that stood on his brow, wide awake though he was. After this I will think of nothing but eating and drinking. Hush, said La Ramee, and one by one he sent away the guards on various pretexts. Well, asked the duke when they were alone. Well, replied La Ramee, your supper is ordered. Ah, and what is it to be? Monsieur, my major-domo, will there be a pie? I should think so indeed, almost as high as a tower. You told him it was for me? Yes, and he said he would do his best to please your highness. Good, exclaimed the duke, rubbing his hands. Devil take it, my lord, what a gourmand you are growing. I haven't seen you with so cheerful a face these five years. The duke saw that he had not controlled himself as he ought, but at that moment, as if he had listened at the door and comprehended the urgent need of diverting La Ramee's ideas, Grimaud entered and made a sign to La Ramee that he had something to say to him. La Ramee drew near to Grimaud, who spoke to him in a low voice. The duke, meanwhile, recovered his self-control. "'I have already forbidden that man,' he said, "'to come in here without my permission.' "'You must pardon him, my lord,' said La Ramee, "'for I directed him to come.' "'And why did you so direct when you know that he displeases me?' "'My lord will remember that it was agreed between us "'that he should wait upon us at that famous supper. "'My lord has forgotten the supper.' "'No, but I have forgotten Monsieur Grimaud.' "'My lord understands that there can be no supper "'unless he is allowed to be present.' Go on, then. Have it your own way. Come here, my lad, said La Ramee, and hear what I have to say. Grimaud approached with a very sullen expression on his face. La Ramee continued, My lord has done me the honor to invite me to a supper tomorrow, en tete-a-tete. Grimaud made a sign which meant that he didn't see what that had to do with him. Yes, yes, said La Ramee. The matter concerns you for you will have the honor to serve us. And besides, however good an appetite we may have, and however great our thirst, there will be something left on the plates and in the bottles, and that something will be yours. Grimaud bowed in thanks. And now, said La Ramee, I must ask your highness's pardon, but it seems that Monsieur de Chevigny is to be away for a few days and he has sent me word that he has certain directions to give me before his departure. The duke tried to exchange a glance with Grimaud, but there was no glance in Grimaud's eyes. "'Go, then,' said the duke, "'and return as soon as possible.' "'Does your highness wish to take revenge for the game of tennis yesterday?' Grimaud intimated by a scarcely perceptible nod that he should consent. "'Yes,' said the duke. But take care, my dear La Ramee, for I propose to beat you badly. La Ramee went out. Grimaud looked after him, and when the door was closed he drew out of his pocket a pencil and a sheet of paper. Write, my lord, he said. And what? Grimaud dictated. All is ready for tomorrow evening. Keep watch from seven to nine. Have two riding horses ready. We shall descend by the first window in the gallery. What next? 
Sign your name, my lord. The duke signed. Now, my lord, give me, if you have not lost it, the ball, that which contained the letter. The duke took it from under his pillow and gave it to Grimaud. Grimaud gave a grim smile. Well? asked the duke. Well, my lord, I sew up the paper in the ball, and you, in your game of tennis, will send the ball into the ditch. But will it not be lost? Oh, no. There will be someone at hand to pick it up. A gardener? Grimaud nodded. The same as yesterday? Another nod on the part of Grimaud. The Count de Rochefort? Grimaud nodded the third time. Come now said the duke. Give some particulars of the plan for our escape. That is forbidden me, said Grimaud, until the last moment. Who will be waiting for me beyond the ditch? I know nothing about it, my lord. But at least if you don't want to see me turn crazy, tell me what that famous pâté will contain. Two poniards, a knotted rope, and a poire d'angoise. This poire d'angoise was a famous gag, in the form of a pear, which being thrust into the mouth, by the aid of a spring, dilated, so as to distend the jaws to their greatest width. Yes, I understand. My lord observes that there will be enough to go around. We shall take to ourselves the poniards and the rope, replied the duke. And make La Ramée eat the pear, answered Grimaud. My dear Grimaud, thou speakest seldom, but when thou dost, one must do thee justice. Thy words are words of gold. End of chapter 19. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 20 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 2, Twenty Years After, by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. One of Marie Michon's Adventures Whilst these projects were being formed by the Duc de Beaufort and Grimaud, the Comte de la Fere and the Vicomte de Bragelonne were entering Paris by the Rue de Faubourg Saint-Marcel. They stopped at the sign of the Fox in the Rue de Vieux Colombier, a tavern known for many years by Athos, and asked for two bedrooms. "'You must dress yourself, Raoul,' said Athos. "'I am going to present you to someone.' "'Today, monsieur,' asked the young man, "'in half an hour.' The young man bowed, perhaps not being endowed with the endurance of Athos, who seemed to be made of iron. He would have preferred a bath in the river Seine, of which he had heard so much, and afterward his bed— but the Comte de la Fere had spoken, and he had no thought but to obey. "'By the way,' said Athos, "'take some pains with your toilet, Raoul. I want you to be approved.' "'I hope, sir,' replied the youth, smiling, "'that there is no idea of a marriage for me. You know of my engagement to Louise.' Athos, in his turn, smiled also. "'No, don't be alarmed. Although it is to a lady that I am going to present you—' and I am anxious that you should love her." The young man looked at the Count with a certain uneasiness, but at a smile from Athos he was quickly reassured. "'How old is she?' inquired the Vicomte de Bragelonne. "'My dear Raoul, learn, once for all, that that is a question which is never asked. 
when you can find out a woman's age by her face it is useless to ask it when you cannot do so it is indiscreet is she beautiful sixteen years ago she was deemed not only the prettiest but the most graceful woman in france this reply reassured the vicomte a woman who had been a reigning beauty a year before he was born could not be the subject of any scheme for him he retired to his toilet when he reappeared athos received him with the same paternal smile as that which he had often bestowed on d'artagnan but a more profound tenderness for raoul was now visibly impressed upon his face athos cast a glance at his feet hands and hair those three marks of race the youth's dark hair was neatly parted and hung in curls forming a sort of dark frame around his face such was the fashion of the day gloves of gray kid matching the hat well displayed the form of a slender and elegant hand whilst his boots similar in color to the hat and gloves confined feet small as those of a boy twelve years old come murmured athos if she is not proud of him she must be hard to please it was three o'clock in the afternoon the two travelers proceeded to the rue Saint-Dominique and stopped at the door of a magnificent hotel, surmounted with the arms of de Luyne. "'Tis here,' said Athos. He entered the hotel and ascended the front steps, and addressing a footman who waited there in a grand livery, asked if the Duchess de Chevreuse was visible and if she could receive the Comte de la Fere. The servant returned with a message to say that, though the Duchess had not the honor of knowing Monsieur de la Fere, she would receive him. Athos followed the footman, who led him through a long succession of apartments, and paused at length before a closed door. Athos made a sign to the Vicomte de Bragelonne to remain where he was. The footman opened the door and announced Monsieur le Comte de la Fere. Madame de Chevreuse, whose name appears so often in our story, The Three Musketeers, without her actually having appeared in any scene, was still a beautiful woman. Although about forty-four or forty-five years old, she might have passed for thirty-five. She still had her rich, fair hair, her large, animated, intelligent eyes, so often opened by intrigue, so often closed by the blindness of love. She had still her nymph-like form, so that when her back was turned she still was not unlike the girl who had jumped with Anne of Austria over the moat of the Tuileries in 1563. In all other respects, she was the same mad creature who threw over her armoires such an air of originality as to make them proverbial for eccentricity in her family. She was in a little boudoir, hung with blue damask, adorned by red flowers with a foliage of gold, looking upon a garden, and reclined upon a sofa, her head supported on the rich tapestry which covered it. She held a book in her hand, and her arm was supported by a cushion. At the footman's announcement she raised herself a little, and peeped out with some curiosity. Athos appeared. He was dressed in violet-tinted velvet, trimmed with silk of the same color. His shoulder-knots were of burnished silver. His mantle had no gold nor embroidery on it. A simple plume of violet feathers adorned his hat. His boots were of black leather, and at his girdle hung that sword with a magnificent hilt that Porthos had so often admired in the Rue Ferron. Splendid lace adorned the falling collar of his shirt, and lace fell also over the top of his boots. In his whole person he bore such an impress of high degree that Madame de Chevreuse half rose from her seat when she saw him and made him a sign to sit down near her. Athos bowed and obeyed. 
The footman was withdrawing, but Athos stopped him by a sign. Madame, he said to the Duchess, I have had the boldness to present myself at your hotel without being known to you. It has succeeded since you deigned to receive me. I have now the boldness to ask you for an interview of half an hour. I grant it, monsieur, said Madame de Chevreuse with her most gracious smile. But that is not all, madame. Oh, I am very presuming, I am aware. The interview for which I ask is of us two alone, and I very earnestly wish that it may not be interrupted. I am not at home to anyone, said the Duchess de Chevreuse to the footman. You may go. The footman went out. There ensued a brief silence during which these two persons, who at first sight recognized each other so clearly as of noble race, examined each other without embarrassment on either side. The Duchess was the first to speak. "'Well, sir, I am waiting with impatience to hear what you wish to say to me.' "'And I, madame,' replied Athos, "'am looking with admiration.' "'Sir,' said Madame de Chevreuse, you must excuse me, but I long to know to whom I am talking. You belong to the court, doubtless, yet I have never seen you at court. Have you by any chance been in the Bastille? No, madame, I have not, but very likely I am on the road to it. Ah, then tell me who you are, and get along with you upon your journey, replied the Duchess with the gaiety which made her so charming for I am sufficiently in bad odor already, without compromising myself still more. Who am I, madame? My name has been mentioned to you, the Comte de la Fere. You do not know that name. I once bore another which you knew, but you have certainly forgotten it. Tell it me, sir. Formerly, said the Count, I was Athos. Madame de Chevreuse looked astonished. The name was not wholly forgotten, but mixed up and confused with ancient recollections. "'Athos,' said she, "'wait a moment.' And she placed her hands on her brow, as if to force the fugitive ideas it contained to concentration in a moment. "'Shall I help you, madame?' asked Athos. "'Yes, do,' said the Duchess. This Athos was connected with three young musketeers named Porthos, D'Artagnan, and— He stopped short. And Aramis, said the Duchess quickly. And Aramis, I see you have not forgotten that name. No, she said. Poor Aramis, a charming man, elegant, discreet, and a writer of poetical verses— I am afraid he has turned out ill, she added. He has. He is an abbé. Ah, what a misfortune, exclaimed the Duchess, playing carelessly with her fan. Indeed, sir, I thank you. You have recalled one of the most agreeable recollections of my youth. Will you permit me, then, to recall another to you? Relating to him? Yes and no. Faith, said Madame de Chevreuse, say on. With a man like you I fear nothing. Athos bowed. Aramis, he continued, was intimate with a young needlewoman from Tours, a cousin of his named 
Marie Michon. Ah, I knew her, cried the Duchess. It was to her we wrote from the siege of Rochelle to warn her of a plot against the Duke of Buckingham. Exactly so. Will you allow me to speak to you of her? If, replied the Duchess with a meaning look, you do not say too much against her. I should be ungrateful, said Athos, and I regard ingratitude not as a fault or a crime, but as a vice, which is much worse. You ungrateful to Marie Michon, monsieur, said Madame de Chevreuse, trying to read in Athos's eyes. But how can that be? You never knew her. Eh, hey, madame, who knows, said Athos. There is a popular proverb to the effect that it is only mountains that never meet, and popular proverbs contain sometimes a wonderful amount of truth. Oh, go on, monsieur, go on, said Madame de Chevreuse eagerly. You can't imagine how much this conversation interests me. You encourage me, said Athos. I will continue, then, that cousin of Aramis, that Marie Michon, that needlewoman, notwithstanding her low condition, had acquaintances in the highest rank. She called the grandest ladies of the court her friend, and the queen, proud as she is in her double character as Austrian and as Spaniard, called her her sister. Alas, said Madame de Chevreuse, with a slight sigh and a little movement of her eyebrows that was peculiarly her own. Since that time, everything has changed. And the queen had reason for her affection, for Marie was devoted to her, devoted to that degree that she served her as medium of intercourse with her brother, the king of Spain. Which, interrupted the duchess, is now brought up against her as a great crime. And therefore, continued Athos, the cardinal, the true cardinal, the other one, determined one fine morning to arrest poor Marie Michon and send her to the Chateau de Loche. Fortunately, the affair was not managed so secretly, but that it became known to the queen. The case had been provided for. If Marie Michon should be threatened with any danger, the queen was to send her a prayer book bound in green velvet. That is true, monsieur. You are well informed. One morning, the green book was brought to her by the Prince de Marseillac. There was no time to lose. Happily, Marie and a follower of hers named Kitty could disguise themselves admirably in men's clothes. The prince procured for Marie Michon the dress of a cavalier and for Kitty that of a lackey. He sent them two excellent horses and the fugitives went out hastily from Tours shaping their course towards Spain, trembling at the least noise, following unfrequented roads, and asking for hospitality when they found themselves where there was no inn. "'Why, really, it was all exactly as you say,' cried Madame de Chevreuse, clapping her hands. "'It would indeed be strange if—' She checked herself. "'If I should follow the two fugitives to the end of their journey—' said Athos. No, madame, I will not thus waste your time. We will accompany them only to a little village in Limousin, lying between Toul and Angoulême, a little village called Roche-le-Baille. 
Madame de Chevreuse uttered a cry of surprise and looked at Athos with an expression of astonishment that made the old musketeer smile. "'Wait, madame,' continued Athos. "'What remains for me to tell you is even more strange than what I have narrated.' "'Monsieur,' said Madame de Chevreuse, "'I believe you are a sorcerer. I am prepared for anything, but really, no matter, go on.' The journey of that day had been long and wearing. It was a cold day, the 11th of October. There was no inn or chateau in the village, and the homes of the peasants were poor and unattractive. Marie Michon was a very aristocratic person. Like her sister the Queen, she had been accustomed to pleasing perfumes and fine linen. She resolved, therefore, to seek hospitality of the priest. Athos paused. "'Oh, continue!' said the duchess i have told you that i am prepared for anything the two travellers knocked at the door it was late the priest who had gone to bed cried out to them to come in they entered for the door was not locked there was much confidence among villagers a lamp burned in the chamber occupied by the priest marie michon who made the most charming cavalier in the world pushed open the door put her head in and asked for hospitality willingly my young cavalier said the priest, if you will be content with the remains of my supper and with half my chamber. The two travellers consulted for a moment. The priest heard a burst of laughter, and then the master, or rather, the mistress, replied, Thank you, Monsieur le Cure, I accept. Sup, then, and make as little noise as possible, said the priest, for I, too, have been on the go all day, and shall not be sorry to sleep to-night. Madame de Chevreuse, evidently went from surprise to astonishment and from astonishment to stupefaction her face as she looked at athos had taken on an expression that cannot be described it could be seen that she had wished to speak but she had remained silent through fear of losing one of her companion's words what happened then she asked then said athos ah i have come now to what is most difficult speak speak one can say anything to me besides it doesn't concern me it relates to mademoiselle marie michon ah that is true said athos well then marie michon had supper with her follower and then in accordance with the permission given her she entered the chamber of her host kitty meanwhile taking possession of an armchair in the room first entered where they had taken their supper really monsieur said madame de chevreuse unless you are the devil in person i don't know how you could become acquainted with all these details a charming woman was that marie michon resumed athos one of those wild creatures who are constantly conceiving the strangest ideas now thinking that her host was a priest that coquette took it into her head that it would be a happy souvenir for her old age among the many happy souvenirs she already possessed if she could win that of having damned an abbe count said the duchess upon my word you frighten me alas continued athos the poor abbe was not a saint amboise and i repeat marie michon was an adorable creature monsieur cried the duchess seizing athos's hand 
tell me this moment how you know all these details or i will send to the convent of the view augustins for a monk to come and exorcise you athos laughed nothing is easier madame a cavalier charged with an important mission had come an hour before your arrival seeking hospitality at the very moment that the cure summoned to the bedside of a dying person left not only his house but the village for the entire night the priest having all confidence in his guest who besides was a nobleman had left to him his house his supper and his chamber and therefore marie came seeking hospitality from the guest of the good abbe and not from the good abbe himself and that cavalier that guest that nobleman who arrived before she came it was i the comte de la fere said athos rising and bowing respectfully to the duchess de chevreuse the duchess remained a moment stupefied then suddenly bursting into laughter <laughs> upon my word said she it is very droll and that mad marie michon fared better than she expected sit down dear count and go on with your story at this point i have to accuse myself of a fault madame i have told you that i was travelling on an important mission at daybreak i left the chamber without noise leaving my charming companion asleep in the front room the follower was also still asleep her head leaning back on the chair in all respects worthy of her mistress her pretty face arrested my attention i approached and recognized that little kitty whom our friend aramis had placed with her in that way i discovered that the charming traveller was marie michon said madame de chevreuse hastily marie michon continued athos then i went out of the house i proceeded to the stable and found my horse saddled and my lackey ready we set forth on our journey and have you never revisited that village eagerly asked madame de chevreuse a year after madame well i wanted to see the good cure again i found him much preoccupied with an event that he could not at all comprehend a week before he had received in a cradle a beautiful little boy three months old with a purse filled with gold and a note containing these simple words eleven october sixteen thirty three it was the date of that strange adventure interrupted madame de chevreuse yes but he couldn't understand what it meant for he had spent that night with a dying person and marie michon had left his house before his return you must know monsieur that marie michon when she returned to france in sixteen forty three immediately sought for information about that child as a fugitive she could not take care of it but on her return she wished to have it near her and what said the abbe asked athos that a nobleman whom he did not know had wished to take charge of it had answered for its future and had taken it away that was true i see that nobleman was you it was his father hush do not speak so loud madame he is there he is there my son the son of marie michon but i must see him instantly take care madame 
said Athos, for he knows neither his father nor his mother. "'You have kept the secret. You have brought him to see me, thinking to make me happy. Oh, thanks, sir, thanks!' cried Madame de Chevreuse, seizing his hand and trying to put it to her lips. "'You have a noble heart.' "'I bring him to you, madame,' said Athos, withdrawing his hand, "'hoping that in your turn you will do something for him. "'Till now I have watched over his education, "'and I have made him, I hope, an accomplished gentleman, "'but I am now obliged to return to the dangerous "'and wandering life of party faction. "'Tomorrow I plunge into an adventurous affair "'in which I may be killed. "'Then it will devolve on you "'to push him on in that world where he is called on "'to occupy a place.' "'Rest assured,' cried the Duchess. "'I shall do what I can. "'I have but little influence now, "'but all that I have shall most assuredly be his. "'As to his title and fortune—' "'As to that, madame, "'I have made over to him the estate of Bragelonne, "'my inheritance, "'which will give him ten thousand francs a year "'and the title of Vicomte.' "'Upon my soul, monsieur!' said the duchess you are a true nobleman but i am eager to see our young vicomte where is he there in the salon i will have him come in if you really wish it athos moved toward the door the duchess held him back is he handsome she asked athos smiled he resembles his mother so he opened the door and beckoned the young man in the duchess could not restrain a cry of joy on seeing so handsome a young cavalier so far surpassing all that her maternal pride had been able to conceive vicomte come here said athos the duchess permits you to kiss her hand the youth approached with his charming smile and his head bare and kneeling down kissed the hand of the duchess de chevreuse sir he said turning to athos was it not in compassion to my timidity that you told me that this lady was the Duchess de Chevreuse, and is she not the queen? No, Vicomte, said Madame de Chevreuse, taking his hand and making him sit near her, while she looked at him with eyes sparkling with pleasure. No, unhappily I am not the queen. If I were, I should do for you at once the most that you deserve. But let us see, whatever I may be— she added, hardly restraining herself from kissing that pure brow. Let us see what profession you wish to follow. Athos, standing, looked at them both with indescribable pleasure. Madame, answered the youth in his sweet voice, it seems to me that there is only one career for a gentleman, that of the army. I have been brought up by Monsieur le Comte with the intention, I believe, of making me a soldier and he gave me reason to hope that at Paris he would present me to someone who would recommend me to the favor of the prince. Yes, I understand it well. Personally, I am on bad terms with him, on account of the quarrels between Madame de Montbazon, my mother-in-law, and Madame de Longueville. But the Prince de Marseillac, uh, yes, indeed, that's the right thing, the prince de marseillac my old friend will recommend our young friend to madame de longueville who will give him a letter to her brother the prince who loves her too tenderly not to do what she wishes immediately well that will do charmingly said the count 
but may I beg that the greatest haste may be made, for I have reasons for wishing the vicomte not to sleep longer than tomorrow night in Paris. Do you wish it known that you are interested about him, Monsieur le Comte? Better for him in the future that he should be supposed never to have seen me. Oh, sir, cried Raoul, you know Bragelonne, said Athos. I never speak without reflection. Well, Comte, I am going instantly, interrupted the Duchess, to send for the Prince de Marseillac, who is happily in Paris just now. What are you going to do this evening? We intend to visit the Abbe Scarron, for whom I have a letter of introduction, and at whose house I expect to meet some of my friends. Tis well. I will go there also for a few minutes, said the Duchess. Do not quit his salon until you have seen me. Athos bowed and prepared to leave. Well, Monsieur le Comte, said the Duchess, smiling, does one leave so solemnly his old friends? Ah, murmured Athos, kissing her hand, had I only sooner know that Marie Michon was so charming a creature. And he withdrew, sighing. End of chapter 20 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.